Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today we are here to talk about the fourth episode in our villain series, our epically long and thick villain series, (laughs) (laughs) The Villains in Star Trek Voyager. You know, I think if all of our villain series were like actual books, our Deep Space Nine one would have been the thickest volume because, whoa guys, thank you for hanging in on that one. It was a very long episode and we really appreciate that you all just sat through almost four hours of content. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were especially surprised and excited to see that in less than 24 hours, it got like 100 downloads or something crazy. So thank you so much for listening and we are just really into this villain series even if it requires a lot of research and a lot of episodes to watch (laughs) oh my god we watched so many episodes for voyager this is why our podcast is just being recorded and it's a tuesday today yeah we're we're so late recording this one (laughs) because truly we had like 20 episodes to watch so yeah Rihanna, I know both of us as sisters are very similar and something that we both tend to do is really go into extreme detail on everything and we're always trying to do our best and often that means that the result is extremely long-winded, so... Yeah, not only that, but like we actually dedicated ourselves to be like, oh yeah, sure, let's watch 20 episodes of Star Trek in three days. <laughs> yeah, which like, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, not with the having a life in the background, you know? <laughs> yeah, we are so excited, my husband and I, because we are moving into our house this Friday. Woo! For those of you, I know none of you millennials have ever bought a house before, so um, (laughs) no one can relate who's my age, and we're only able to do it through the VA, but it's a very stressful process, so we are happy to be nearing the end of it. Yeah, that's amazing. You're doing this and the podcast? Wow, impressive. And Rihanna is just moved in with her little lady, and she's also doing the podcast. It's mostly just integrating my cats that's the biggest issue, because... We have three now, instead of me just having one, so it's wild, but they're having a good time, and so am I, so (laughs) that's all that matters. (laughs) Yeah, before the recording started, Rihanna said that, so she doesn't disturb the cats, sometimes she has to watch the Star Trek episodes in the dark in her room, so she doesn't go to the living room and mess up the cat situation. (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole system at night, because they have to still stay separated till they're completely ready to not (laughs) kill each other while we're asleep, so... (laughs) It's a good time. You know, you're doing hard work, and I appreciate you and all your kitties. Thank you. It's hard being a mother of three. I'll tell you that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rihanna, if you could be a mother of three and have any partner Mm -hmm. that was a villain in Voyager, who would you choose? So I have another interesting one this week that you might disagree with. Okay. I would love to run away with the... Q in Death Wish. His name's Quinn. Oh. He's a philosopher and he protests the fact that Q have to be immortal. And the entire episode is pretty much him 
trying to advocate for himself and his rights and how his philosophy papers were not being received by the continuum anymore after he started publishing rhetoric about it being okay to die. And I just think that's really admirable. You'd have to be with him because he does not want to live. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, he eats away pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, once he's given the opportunity. But I think knowing him as a philosopher in the continuum would be really cool. I was a minor in philosophy in college, and so philosophy is a big part of my life, and I love getting into those deep subjects, and I think we could have a lot of interesting talks together. So I would really like to run away with Quinn. Wow. I a little bit would argue that Quinn is a villain, but I know in this series we have posed all Q and the whole continuum as the villains, so I accept your choice, but I'm just gonna say, like, he's the nicest Q that we know. Yeah, that's why I would run away with him. (laughs) Honestly, it's hard choosing a villain in Voyager because, and this is nothing against Voyager. I love Voyager as a series. They notoriously don't have very well-written villains, and this is something that we're going to discuss today, but it was hard to choose because there's no universe where I want to run away with a Herojin, you know? That's just (laughs) not it. (laughs) You don't want to be the hunter hunting the prey? No, I don't think the hunt is on for me. I think I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, fair. So Ashlyn, what about you? Which villain in Voyager would you want to run away with? Well, I would run away with Chaotica. You have to tell me more. Okay, so mostly it's because exactly what you said, Rihanna. These villains are terrible. I don't want to run away with the Borg Queen (laughs) or, (laughs) or, like you said, or Anorax or Species 8472. No, 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 none of that. So I would run away with Chaotica also because I think I would be the bride of Chaotica like Janeway is in that episode. Mm. I would love to just like pretend to run away with him and then really like thwart him. And also it'd be fun to exist in a universe that kind of has low stakes, you know, like it's really campy. Living in a hologram seems like a fun universe. So I would do that. I wouldn't mind. In this situation, you would know that you were in a hologram? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would know that I am a uh, carbon being, as Tuvok says. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's a really good answer, and I think that you could have a lot of fun with Chaotica, even though he's a little wild. Yeah, he's chaotic, and I I don't mind chaos, so. (laughs) Well said, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the villains we are going to discuss in this episode. So I'm going to, instead of last week, just randomly listing villains, I'm going to actually list them in the order that we're going to talk about them. Okay. I've decided to add a little bit of organization to this chaos. Whoa, she's leveling up. I know. I got up like two minutes earlier today (laughs) than I normally do. Okay. So today we are going to talk about the Maquis once again in the episodes, The Caretaker, State of Flux, Maneuvers, and Basics, Part 1 and 2. Then Q with Death Wish and Q in the Gray. Sulan with Faces. Chaotica, of course, in The Bride of Chaotica. Anorax in The Year of Hell, Part 1 and 2. The Herogen in Hunters, Prey, Killing Game, Part 1 and 2. Species 8472 with The Scorpion, Part 1 and 2. In the Flesh. And finally, we will end with the Borg, where we will discuss Dark Frontier, Unimatrix Zero, and the finale of Voyager Endgame. 
Okay, so we talked so much about the Maquis in our New Space Nine episode. Rihanna, will you give us a quick reminder for those listeners who have not watched DS9 and want to know what the heck the Maquis is? Yeah, so the Maquis began as a, quote, anti-Cardassian force, where the Cardassians were looking to expand their territory and the Federation, not wanting to break trust or treaties with the Cardassians, gave them permission to expand into Federation colony planets right on their Cardassian border. And so in back, way back in The Next Generation, the episode Journey's End, we see that Picard has gone to a planet that is now within Cardassian space to try and placate the civilians and the colonists there, who it was their home and everything, that, hey, your land is being taken by the Cardassians. Try to live peacefully. And we see in Deep Space Nine that does not happen. They do not live peacefully. There is a bit of a coup and a civil war going on on these planets. (laughs) You know, just a little one. So then there's this full-scale battle going on between the Cardassians and these colonists, the Federation colonists, who have dubbed themselves the Maquis. And this is a shock to the Federation and to Golducott because no one could ever believe that the Federation could have a rebellion faction. Whoa, what a shocker. But anyway, the Maquis then spread their influence into an area called the Badlands, which is a nebulous zone in some part of space. Somewhere in the Alpha Quadrant. I think it's between Earth and Deep Space Nine. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in that vast space. <laughs> somewhere between Earth and Cardassia, so a bazillion choices. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where we find our first episode of Voyager, is Captain Catherine Janeway is being sent to go and apprehend a Maquis ship that is in the Badlands, and they get pulled together into the Delta Quadrant. Yeah, something I thought was super interesting, which I totally forgot to mention in our podcast last week, is that in a Deep Space Nine episode about the Maquis, they mention the Badlands, and there's just one sentence that says, we don't want to go in there many ships disappear from that area, so let's just avoid it. And that's it. That's all they say about it. And so just like so many series before it, the series of Voyager was created off of one line in DS9. Don't go into the Badlands, and that's exactly what Voyager does because the caretaker has pulled them into the Delta Quadrant along with the Maquis ship that had a rebel spy. I, I'm sorry, that had a uh, Maquis infiltrator. Uh. Uh, and, yeah, this is not Star Wars. Yeah. And his name is Tuvok, and he's very nice. But poor Chakotay, it turns out, has a lot of traitors on board. And <laughs> Oh my god, this poor guy. What I find most interesting about the Maquis, especially in the first couple episodes of Voyager, is that they seem strangely, for the most part, okay with coming together with Voyager, but there is a lot of infighting at first. Yeah, you know, I thought the caretaker as a pilot would have more of that tension hinting at because the first, I'd say good first part of the season is a lot about the various scuffles that happen on Voyager while everyone's getting used to each other. And really, the only person who has a lot to protest about is Bellana in The Caretaker, in this pilot. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense because this pilot is really trying to do a lot. It's trying to establish why they're in the Delta Quadrant, how they can't get back, the conflict between the Ocampa and the Kazon, and the conflict between the Ocampa and the Caretaker, and the conflict between the Ocampa and Kess. <laughs> <laughs> I do understand that like they can't fit then a whole Maki drama into this latter half of the episode once they realize that they're going to be stranded but it was really just a couple lines at the end of the episode where Janeway's like okay you're my first officer now Chakotay and then Chakotay's just like cool (laughs) yeah they must not have had time to address that but I think what bothers me I'm kind of a Maki sympathizer and it bothers me that they are all forced to be put into Starfleet uniforms because they all abandoned Starfleet. And so it's as shocking to me that they agree to wear them as it is that Janeway's okay letting them wear their uniforms because they defected. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I know that Janeway is desperately trying to cling to order. And so she makes them all wear the same uniform. So it isn't two crews that she's in charge of and is trying to force them to make peace essentially. But I just feel bad that the Maquis don't have a say in any of this. Yeah, I would have wished that maybe they had an episode following this one where we see them in a conference room trying to hash out sort of an agreement. So maybe the pilot didn't end with, I'm the captain now, you're the first officer, everyone's in Starfleet uniforms. Like, it'd be cool if the second episode were like a transition where everyone's still in different uniforms and they're actually trying to negotiate. Because like, that's what Star Trek's all about is figuring out how can we have a peaceful solution to this? And I would have really liked to see that because I think it would have brought together my understanding more of how these two crews were able to work together so swiftly. We do see a little bit of this when Bolana punches that guy in engineering <laughs> and then they decide to make her chief engineer. Not because she punches him. That sounded like <laughs> that's where I was applying, but <laughs> violence wins. <laughs> <laughs> but because she's a fantastic engineer. And yeah, I just think that all of the Maquis had their reasons for not wanting to trust Starfleet anymore, and understandable reasons. I mean, from Bolana's perspective, she was kicked out of the academy. She has a lot of issues with authority in the fact that they don't trust her, and so how is she supposed to trust them? She found an authority that she could believe in, which is Chakotay, and I think that this is the main key that really makes me realize, okay, actually, it makes a little more sense that they were more on board with this is because Chakotay is their leader. And if Chakotay is okay with it, then they have to be okay with it too. It's sort of similar to this chain of command and this hierarchy is it's still active in the Maquis and Chakotay is their leader and their captain. And so I think that in some ways they're like, well, if Chakotay thinks this is best, then we have to fall into line or else this is never going to work. And so I can kind of see that perspective. Yeah, and Chakotay and the rest of the Maquis have to realize there are no Cardassians in the Delta Quadrant, and so it's okay to put their issues aside because at this point it's all about getting home. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's obviously convenient that all of the Starfleet personnel who die happen to be easily replaced by the Maquis crew. Like, oh, the chief engineer died, so, you know, Balana, like, go for it. But in that way, too, it forces them to work together as a team because they can't survive without the other. And that's the choice that Chakotay makes when he sacrifices the Maquis ship 
to destroy the Kazon, which we are going to talk about the Kazon and Seska in this Maquis section, mm-hmm. just so everybody no knows. We're going to get into Seska, even if you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so, I mean, I would say most of the first season does have these little skirmishes where the Maquis don't socialize with Federation people, and it's the same on the Federation side. But one person who is really causing chaos throughout the ship is Seska. Because she does not want to listen to anyone from Starfleet. In the episode State of Flux, she actually steals food from Neelix's kitchen and makes a special suit for Chakotay. And when he finds out, he's pissed. He's like, what? You stole food from the kitchen from the whole rest of the crew when everybody's trying to survive? Because we have no no replicators online? That's crazy. I think they have replicators online. It's just they can't use them for 70 plus years they think this voyage is going to (laughs) take. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, this is the thing about Seska is that she sort of creeps in as this character who's first just sort of a scoundrel. You know, she's just not following the rules. She's not adhering to Starfleet protocol, all of that stuff. And to an extent, I'm like, okay, you know, fair. She is taking a bit of time to integrate, and that's understandable. And there's a part of me that when I first meet Seska, is just like, okay, maybe this is an adjustment period. But clearly it's not. Seska has a much longer agenda, and I think that honestly, from her perspective, she sees an opportunity and she seizes it without much thought given and not to say that she's not thoughtless either she's very cunning and she's very manipulative and this is what gets her so far in the delta quadrant and what truly will be her triumph and her downfall and so i think that she's a really impulsive character but a lot of her impulses come from oh let me manipulate this person until i get what i want I think she's someone in the Star Trek universe who's like a master at manipulation. Someone who's up there like with Gold Dukat, mm-hmm. in my opinion. She is incredibly smart. And actually, I didn't even mean to say Gold Dukat and make the comparison because we find out in the episode State of Flux at the end that she's actually a Cardassian. Right. So I don't want to be Cardassianist, but you know, <laughs> um, it seems like both her and Gold Dukat are just trained in the ways of manipulating people. I think it's especially upsetting for Chakotay, which we find out that he was in love with her at one point. And so poor Chakotay also, I'm just like pouring one out for him because he's furious when he finds out that Seska was a spy, Tuvok was a spy. And he has a great conversation with Tuvok where he asks, am I just that much of a pushover? Do I just believe in the goodness of people that I can't see what's staring me right in the face and Tuvok's like no man we were tricking you it's not your fault yeah they're just very good at tricking him he happened to come across some of the most convincing spies that he's ever met and that's tough you know regardless of who you are and I want to make a quick note for Chakotay that I think was so brilliant about his character and about the writing for him is that I love that he is sort of the face of the Maquis when we first meet him because we find out that he is um, Native American, maybe not American, but he's a Native person on Earth. And so I think it's cool that they did this parallel. Since we're already talking about the Maquis sprung from a group of colonists who had their land taken away from them, first on Earth and then on their colony in Cardassian space, 
then let's use Chakotay as a symbol of that to carry it further. They spend a lot of time on Chakotay and his cultural and spiritual backgrounds and I think it's just really cool. I think it was a really smart choice for Chakotay to be this character because it really sets up the precedent of I understand why he's fighting for his land and I understand that this comes from generational trauma and understanding that this is something we need to change and it's Star Trek just being Star Trek. It's telling us hey there's more to this than just talking about space and the Delta Quadrant. We're talking about real issues that are going on and Chakotay is a really good representative for that. And I just wanted to announce that because I think it's super important. Yeah, well, and I love that we see his tribal practices frequently happen on Voyager. Mm -hmm. Even in the next couple episodes we're going to talk about with Seska, we see him go on a vision quest and Mm -hmm. actually see his dad. Yeah. And I think so many people, not so much now, but I think in the past, obviously... because uh, we have a horrible past. Yeah. People mock ancient traditions and things like that. And so I love that Voyager gives them credit yeah. and showcases how wonderful it is to celebrate these different cultures. Yeah, and that none of the Voyager characters, unless they're intentionally supposed to be written this way of being bigoted, are very supportive of him, you know? And they really just lift each other up instead of tearing each other down, regardless of if he was a former monkey, you know? And I, I just think that that's really cool. Yes. Something else I forgot to mention while we're on this back in the Maquis area again Mm -hmm. is that I think Chakotay never would have known that Tuvok was a spy because we also saw in Deep Space Nine that Vulcans were sympathetic with the Maquis. Yeah. And so to a lot of Vulcans in this era, supporting the Maquis is logical. And so I think it's also really cool that we see Vulcans and other species coming out to support the Maquis and saying, this is not cool, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really shows that although the Maquis are pinned as villains and there's probably a better way they could be going about this, it's very understandable and I don't know what else they could do to get Starfleet to listen. I would like to hope that when Voyager gets back to Earth that they can have a serious discussion, but it's also been seven years since then and so we don't know the state of the Maquis during that time if it was abolished if it grew in strength we don't really i don't think get much information ever again about the maki in this timeline and so i'd be really curious to learn did the fact that once the federation realizes voyagers alive and that they have now maki members serving on voyager does that sort of change the nature of the maki back in alpha quadrant i am not sure about this but i'm pretty sure we get news about the maki when they get letters back oh yeah i'm pretty sure that the maki that it's over and i think that the war with the dominion is over during voyager i think you're right maybe there was an episode arc about that with with, like them getting maki letters anyway i also want to just briefly mention tom because i had forgotten that he was also former maki and he was only with them for a couple weeks before he was captured. And that's why Janeway grabs him for this mission in the first place. And that's the reason he's on this penal colony is because he was arrested for being with the Maquis. And so this is a third person that Chakotay sees and is like, Tom, you betrayed us. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, this dude was only there for one mission. not a very good Maquis member. It's so funny. Poor Chicote, he's seeing ghosts left and right here. 
Let's dive more into Seska, I think. Yeah, so this is episode State of Flux. Seska is, you know, like Ashlyn said, actually a Cardassian, and turns out that she's working with this Kazon sect that is one of the most violent of the sects. And this Kazon sent a distress call. And so Seska and a couple other in the landing party go and join on this Kazon ship and find out that there's Federation technology that blew up literally while they were trying to use it. And that's what killed a bunch of the crew members and why they sent the distress call. And so then Seska plants evidence on other officers to try to make it look like they're sabotaging all of this stuff. So she's secretly working with them. Seska's so smart that you don't realize that she's working with the Kazon or that she's even going undercover. And I think half of the episode, I was convinced as well that she wasn't. Like, even though I've literally seen this before, I was like, maybe it's not this one where she becomes evil because she's so good at manipulating that, like, okay, there's a lot of shots of her and they really start to include her. And so as part of a, like, writer, you know, my writer brain is like, oh, yes, this makes sense. They're really starting to show her. She's on the landing party. She is really really starting to integrate into this episode plot so like yes she's gotta be the the traitor but she's so good at convincing Chakotay that she really almost convinces me and I do think oh maybe she does have a rare blood disorder (laughs) you know that Bajorans have and I just think it's really effed up that she disguised herself as a Bajoran when she's Cardassian (laughs) like that's next level um it's gold to got level Literally, why did I think of this that? This is, I know, this is why I was so surprised that I kept making these subconscious Gold Ducat references with her because. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah, I guess it's just a theme. Like, if you're a Cardassian going undercover, you're like, hmm, I'm going to be a Bajoran. I'll be uh, sympathetic to everyone around me. Well, and, yeah, I think you're right. It generates sympathy. And sadly, Cardassians know Bajorans very well because of the occupation. And so. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that little wah-wah was the understatement of the year. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, Major Kira would punch me for that. Literally. Wah-wah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say something, too, about Seska and about these villains in general, is that we see throughout the Star Trek canon that so many villains take advantage of Starfleet's helpful nature, and they take advantage of the fact that protocol dictates if you're a Starfleet vessel, you have to go and answer a distress call, regardless of who it's from. And so, like I was saying earlier, the Kazon, who sent the distress call, this is one of the most dangerous sex sets. I can't, I don't want to say sex, but like, it sounds like sex. (laughs) Yeah. My husband kept walking in on me every time they were like, the sex is on its way. And he was like, um, what What? are you watching? (laughs) And I'm like, like, no, it's the sect. The sect is on its way. (laughs) I'm just going to go with Kazon faction. This faction is one of the most dangerous ones. Yeah. So it's just crazy that there's this Federation tech because then it is clear that there's a traitor and it's clear that there's something more sinister going on here. Yeah. I mean, poor Miss. Mr. Carey gets framed for it. The guy who got punched in the nose. Yeah. Um, She almost gets him. Like, she almost convinces them. It's really close. I think what gives Seska the edge on so many other villains is her aptitude with technology. She is extremely intelligent with how Voyager works, with how starships work in general. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes her all the more formidable because she's able to talk her way out of pretty much any situation 
And she can use the Voyager computer to back up what she's saying. And it's only because Chakotay knows her so well that he's able to call it out. Because, yeah, when they're going back and forth for the whodunit situation, <laughs> who's communicating with the Kazon, she ends up using her own computer access codes to make it seem like the guy who got punched was using her code. You know, so it's so many mind games. But what they're able to find in the end is that they can trace that she was able to use the codes from her place in sick bay where she is so yeah well and the game is up the yeah and the jig is really up too when they realize she's actually cardassian because the monkey yeah. is a literal anti-cardassian force or at least started that way and so i think that that's a pretty big giveaway as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay also just something i was interested in do you think that Voyager, independently of Seska, should have given the Kazon replicators because that's all that she did. And honestly, I feel kind of bad for the Kazon because they don't have any water. That's a big problem. That's why they had this conflict with the Ocompans is that the caretaker does not give an F about them and is depriving them of food and water. And yeah, even though this technology would quote unquote change the balance of power in the Delta Quadrant, wouldn't it also be part of Starfleet's we gotta help everybody code yeah i think that starfleet has to toe the line often between helping people and white savior complex and i think that this is one of the issues that voyager encounters quite often in the delta quadrant particularly in in this beginning section where we're very much in case on space we're very much still dealing with the Ocompin caretaker issues that I agree that I felt this like sort of sick feeling in my stomach that oh my god all they wanted was a food replicator like mm-hmm. and absolutely Neelix talks about this how it would absolutely change your life if you've been spending your whole life living from each meal to then realizing you can get it out of thin air anytime you want you know is a huge huge deal it's just a bummer because the Kazon aren't nefarious and notorious for seizing power when the opportunity is given to them and so i think that's why janeway is hesitant to do trade deals with them because of her past dealings with the kazon i mean they were ready to just take over the array from the caretaker and have all of this power in their hands that would make them quite dangerous and so i think the kazon on their own are not super dangerous because they don't have the technology to match voyager but with Seska's technological help, as well as her knowledge of both Voyager and of Maki tricks, she is able to elevate them to that same sort of level of power as Voyager and get them to take over Voyager, you know, and all this stuff. Ah, uh, yeah, it's tricky and it's definitely a dicey situation, but I think it straddles that line. I love your point. I also think that Janeway might have been more open to giving them technology if the Kazon had been united as one. But what we're going to find out in these episodes is that all the Kazon sects (laughs) or factions (laughs) are separate and they do not unite with each other for really any reason. That's exactly what Seska is trying to do. Once she leaves Voyager and joins Kulla is the guy she's like in love with or manipulating the most. Yeah. She is, without his permission, reaching out to the other leaders of the Kazon factions and saying, come here and let's band together to defeat Voyager. That one is a really interesting episode as well because we get to see more of the command structure within the Kazon and more about their culture. And 
they, again, like so many species we've encountered, including our own, are very sexist and do not consider females to be on the same level as them with intelligence. And so to have Kula and all the rest of the Kazon interacting with someone as intelligent as Seska, it is both infuriating and intimidating to him because she's the one barking orders to the rest of the Kazon on the ship and he is so annoyed and he's like, woman, shut your mouth. Like he's saying all these, yeah. you know, he's telling her to shut up all the time. Mm -hmm. But when she does overstep and invite the other leaders to join, he's angry with her, but he likes it, of course, and he's happy in the end that she's done it. Yeah, because ultimately a lot of Seska's choices are the right ones for whatever situation she's in. I do not like this Kazon. Kola is just annoying. I, I don't really find him to be that big of a villain because it's just Seska pulling the strings and he really doesn't have a lot of his own independent thoughts when they are his own independent thoughts. They're not very intelligent or good. They're all sexist, yeah. <laughs> this is something that makes Seska so formidable and something I really appreciate about her is that she also has such an influence on Chakotay to this day, even after she betrays him, he still feels so massively guilty that he didn't realize this about Seska when she was part of the Maquis or when they were in the Delta Quadrant in the beginning, that he goes off on his own to try and stop her. And it's such a dumb idea of this misplaced guilt that he has that he feels the best way to save the crew is to go on his own. It's very main character of him. I'm like, calm down. But I understand <laughs> to an extent. A lot of things Chakotay does, I don't really understand. Do you want to tell me more about him? Because I think you understand Chakotay more than I do. See, I was just going to say, this is one of the few times I don't understand Chakotay. <laughs> because, yeah. well, I mean, I do. I. It's like my math teacher used to say, I have sympathy, but not empathy I for Chakotay. I think you Chakotay. talk about <laughs> on like almost every single one of our podcasts. <laughs> it's because, not me, but someone else was like, oh, I forgot my homework today. Can I turn it in tomorrow? And she was like, you know, I have sympathy, but not empathy for you. Like, <laughs> you cannot turn it in tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. <laughs> I have a lot of dreams about calculus. Um, anyway, that's how I feel about Chakotay too, because I understand why, and mostly it's because he used to love her, and he's embarrassed that he used to love a Cardassian spy. Yeah, that's fair. And, and that's it, you know? And what he says to Janeway at the end of the episode is that he didn't want to risk further harm to the crew, to the point that he's willing to sacrifice his life so that's that's what I don't understand. And that's why I think he didn't really think it through. I think he was like, well, I'm going to stop Seska. Whatever happens after that is fine. Yeah. What season is this? How long uh, have you known Janeway at this point? Yeah, it's season two. It's like season okay. two, uh, episode 11. You know, fair. So like, I think he doesn't also understand quite yet that Janeway will literally sacrifice the entirety of Voyager to uh, save a crew member regardless of who they are, and that running away is just going to make them chase after him. <laughs> so yeah. might as well work together. And I'm really glad that Janeway has this discussion with him because I think it sets up a better basis of understanding for the episode basics because then they actually are working together here when Seska manipulates Chakotay with the baby. I also just want to say about Seska that she is the ultimate hype man. You know, like say <laughs> say what you want about her, but if you're like, okay, you go up to her, you're like, Seska, um, 
I think I'm going to do this today. She goes, yes, Maj. And then he's like, okay, and then I'm going to do that. And she's like, yes, Maj. And she's like, okay, and then I'm going to go over here. And she's like, yes, Maj. Like that scene, I was just cracking up because she is hyping him up so much. She's like, yes, Maj, you can do it. I believe in you. (laughs) Of course, he's a puppet, but I just thought that scene was amazing. memes where say Chicote is just like Seska no and she goes Seska yes <laughs> <laughs> like, that's very much the energy she gets I mean off. I honestly like she's so evil but I do admire her you know yeah. like she said okay I'm so far away from Cardassia I'm gonna make friends with a different species and I'm gonna be the head of them yeah you know? that's pretty impressive especially not knowing the politics of the Delta Quadrant or the no. power shift or anything she just finds the biggest baddie and joins them. No and, fear. Yeah, no fear. And it's just, it's very hard to thwart someone like Janeway. And that's something that I also admire and find a little bit scary about Seska. It's pretty easy for her to take over Voyager, <laughs> all things considered. It really is. Do we need to talk about Chicote being tortured? It's <laughs> just rough, poor guy. Uh, yeah, we do, because at the end, we hear oh. that Seska is like, by the way, I took some of your DNA and impregnated myself, which is horrible. Not his consent, not his decision. Like, all of this is bad. Obviously, he's being tortured, so that's not good either. But, like, it bothers me more, almost, that she took his DNA and impregnated herself. I just don't really want to think too hard about how she took his DNA because a lot of the times in shows, DNA is synonymous with sperm, you know? So, like, did she pluck his hair? Did she get a blood sample? Did she, like, do something terrible to him while he was asleep? Yeah. This is one of the things I find most mm. frightening about Seska, is I feel like she has no limit to what she will do to get what she wants. And this is what gets her into hot water later on, but it also what gets her so far up with the Kazon sect that she is literally, (laughs) (laughs) she's the paramour of the Maj. You know, that's pretty intense. That's like a big role to play. So she's scary. (laughs) She is scary. And also having that power over Chakotay now because she's pregnant with his baby and then we see her in basics with the baby that is even worse because she's facetiming voyager all the time and even though it's being projected on the bridge it's always right to Chakotay, and she's like hey babe i have your baby here and it's so humiliating for him because it reminds the whole ship every time that seska manipulated and took Chakotay down and so he's constantly like dang it (laughs) this lady is back again and even worse she stages this whole situation where Chakotay thinks that she's in danger and that Kula found out that the baby wasn't his and now he's gonna kill her and the baby so this makes Chakotay who wants to be a good person and is questioning do I want to be a good father do I save this baby do I leave it out to dry what's going on It puts him in a really tough situation. And then he goes on this cool vision quest, which we talked so much about in our family series that I Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier in this episode. And you know what? It turns out this baby is not even his. (laughs) Ooh, it's just awful because I have a couple questions about this baby. Do you think that having this baby spawned as a desire to be a mother or I feel like it spawned more to use as another bargaining chip against Voyager? Yep, I think it was bargaining chip first, and then she thought, oh, and it'd be cool to have a baby, it'd be cute. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with babies, is they're so cute, you know? And you're like, 
damn it. This thing is so cute. I have to go help it. That's exactly what I was thinking is that she's like, okay, when I FaceTime them, I'm going to have this cute baby crying. <laughs> you can't say no to that. I mean, Voyager is already easily manipulated from, like I said earlier, that so many villains take advantage of their kindness. That of course, they're not going to leave a baby high and dry. And I think that Chakotay knew all along he just needed that push from his father in the vision quest to say a lot of our tribal women went through similar things you went through and kept the babies and the baby is who you're focusing on. You're not trying to save Seska, you're trying to save this child who is innocent to their mother's sins. I think it's really awful, but it is kind of great that it's not Chakotay's because it really takes Seska out of her power because she's like, what? Yeah. I thought I had this bargaining chip and turns out it's not actually Chakotay's. Turns out it's this Kazon dude's. I don't want that, you know? And so I think it makes her deflate a little and realize, oh, maybe I don't have as much power as I thought I did. Also, WTF, this is another Gold Ducat parallel where there's a baby coming out and it's not the right species oh, you thought it was. God. <laughs> We're talking about the cult again. <laughs> I thought we were done with that. I'm sorry, just briefly. I just thought that that was really yeah, crazy. You're so and right. it also shows that the Cardassian gene is really strong because I feel like the Kazon has very recognizable facial structure mm. and just the way their things on their heads are is yeah. very relatable. So I would expect any baby of theirs to have that passed on. But right. no, it's the Cardassian genes that are coming in so strong. Yeah. I also just want to have a shout out to the poor Betazoid murderer that's on Voyager because when the whole crew is stranded on this planet and there's like volcanoes going off, you know, because Kulla and Seska have taken over Voyager and then they strand the crew of Voyager in part two of basics and it's only the doctor and this Betazoid murderer, I'm not joking even, that that are able to take over the ship from the Kazon and get the Voyager crew back on board. Of course, Tom and the Voyager crew down on the planet are doing their thing to get back on Voyager, but... This Betazoid dude, he was a former villain. He's been meditating with Tuvok and doing a lot of planting and taking care of... rehabilitation. Yeah, and so when it comes to the time where he has to murder these Kazon to survive, it is so traumatizing for him because he's almost healed from all the horrors that he's committed. And then here we go. He's back in it, you know? And he doesn't even make it out of this. He dies saving Voyager. No, he dies. Although I love that Tuvok said may you be at peace more than you ever were in your life. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's a Vulcan proverb. It's Correct. so good. Yeah. Oh what? God. Brianna, how do you know Vulcan proverbs? Because he said, this is oh. a Vulcan <laughs> proverb for the often said at funerals. I forgot that. I thought you were just like, had them all memorized. <laughs> no, but one day I'll be like a Ferengi who just like studies them. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Vulcan proverb number 92. <laughs> yeah. So I do feel really bad for the murderous Betazoid. And I also feel really bad for the guy who died picking up bones. Can we just pour one out for him? Because that was tragic. (laughs) He was on this planet and Neelix said, spare nothing. And he said, pick up these bones. And this guy's just looking down at these bones like, is this really my life? And then he gets eaten by this big worm. (laughs) So I just want to pour one out for him because I feel terrible that that's how how this this Starfleet officer wins. I can't even breathe. Star Trek, you just take something so small like that out of context and you're like, then a big worm ate him and he was looking at the bones. 
amazing. Oh, it's just rough. That was a big word. I'm sorry. I just, I'm trying to focus on what you're saying, but I'm just thinking about that poor man. <laughs> he looks left him alone to pick up a pile of bones. He couldn't even carry. There was like a whole sternum. There was like a rib cage. How are you supposed to carry that? I, I just, I can't even do it. And aren't okay. bones like, don't you get cut on them? Like, didn't, don't you think you oh. get like bone splinters? Anyway. Oh, Brianna has such an aversion to splinters. Yeah. You're thinking that bones have them? I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, I think so. when bones are hard and dried up, they get really sharp. I think they turn into rocks, Rihanna. I don't think so. <laughs> I think we bones need are a, sharp. We need a dinosaur expert <laughs> on our Star Trek podcast. We really do. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, this planet is not good for them. It's M-class, but it's not very habitable. But they find another species there who sort of kidnaps them and then lets them go. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. I think that this is sort of showing Chakotay's growth as well, that he didn't run off into the, his guilt spiral and say, like, okay, I need to fix this all on my own. First of all, everyone banded together to try to save what they thought was his baby. And so he does have some guilt about that because they put them in this position. But also they rely on each other and they know that they're going to make this work. And this is a thread that I found throughout the entirety of these villain episodes we watched, is that one person can really turn the tide of a situation like we're talking about how paris is the only one in the shuttlecraft but he's able to go and grab a bunch of the talaxians and they can come back with their ships to fight off the kazon in voyager but they only do it because paris hacks into the emergency hologram channel and is able to get to the doctor you know and so it's only because of these exact things happening when they need to that things are able to be accomplished I don't know, I just find it really inspiring that one person can be stranded on a ship of a bazillion Kazon and one hologram and they can still save the day and go and pick up their entire crew. We see this happen a lot with Voyager and so I think it's important to remember they rely on each other for that reason. They know that even an individual can save them from these very notorious villains. Rihanna, I didn't even realize I was thinking that as often as I was, but now that you're saying it, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I kept having thoughts like, man, I need to be more like that person and have confidence in myself and know that the actions that I take will make a difference and yeah it's very inspiring I agree absolutely so Seska dies in this yeah she dies when Voyager is retaken by the crew there's a whole fight I mean the murderous Betazoid killed a lot of Kazon yeah (laughs) he kind of went on a spree and Voyager took a lot of hits also from the Talaxians and so I think that's how Seska died was she was just hit by one of those the baby survived yeah correct baby survived And Kula does not know for sure that the baby is his, but maybe they will have some actual doctors look at it at some point. Yeah, I'm sure once he's taken back to the home world or whatever. Yeah, but that's his baby, so... The curtain closes on our Seska adventures and the Maquis. Gone, but kind (laughs) of forgotten. forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kind of forgotten. (laughs) It's Q time. It is Q time. Get out your your Q sticks. So, Rihanna, (laughs) get out of here. Um, I also think that this part of the pod should be called the single villainous men section because we are about to talk about a lot of 
evil men in this section. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start with Q. The episode starts with the love of Rihanna's life. Um, <laughs> his name is... Far. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just run away with him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's fair. His name is Q also, but they call him Quinn later in the episode. And as Rihanna explained so beautifully in the beginning of the pod, he is a philosopher who believes that the Q have lost their way and are not expanding or having a dialogue or changing in any way at all. He wants to die. He wants to end his life because Q are immortal. They can execute other Q, but it is illegal for you to take your own life. Voyager ends up finding him because they find this like floating coffin in space and they beam sure. it up. And, <laughs> yeah, and then that's how he gets on board. And then of course, the Q that we know and maybe love <laughs> appears on Voyager. And Janeway says, like, I know about you from Picard, haha. Q is a pretty different Q than the last time that we've seen him. He is no more a trickster or someone who's just here to cause chaos. He is the lapdog of the continuum, and he is here to take Quinn back to the continuum and then put him back in exile for the rest of his life. Not just exile, but like solitary confinement. Yeah, back in the in coffin. In like really tight crystal yeah. space. Yeah. yeah, it looks awful. <laughs> I just want to note too that Janeway has such good instincts that when she hears, hi, I'm Q, she goes, red alert. <laughs> <laughs> like no pause. Because <laughs> she knows that Q is bad news and anything that involves Q is usually followed by shenanigans. I wrote down Q as sexist AF because this is just another running thread between our single villains <laughs> that they are really sexist and he is awful to Janeway and we're going to talk about this in the following episodes as well but first of all he's like whoa like no wonder you're stranded in the Delta Quadrant you have a woman as a captain. I'm like, yep. you know what, Gross. I'll fight you. Yeah. I don't know. It, it is interesting to see Q in this realm without Picard because I feel like Picard is such a good influence on Q and challenges him in a way that Janeway doesn't gain the respect enough from him to challenge only because she's a woman. And it's just so dumb. Can you describe the dynamic between Janeway and Q? Because it's very ugh to me. Okay, so Janeway in the middle of this episode says that she's so shocked that beings as evolved as the Q, because Qs are basically gods, like they're yeah. the highest form of beings they're that like we know in the Star Trek itself. universe. Yeah. Yeah, they were never born, they have just always been there. Mm -hmm. And so Janeway says that she's shocked that beings like them could still have war and the death penalty mm -hmm. and laws against individual freedoms and sexism. Yeah. She didn't say this, but this is part of my argument mm -hmm. is that this is all a part of the Q continuum beginning to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And Q himself, we never saw him be sexist before on The Next Generation. No. And so... He's more like Klingonist and like, you know, I mean, other, other bad things. He's rude. Yeah. <laughs> he's rude to everyone. But yeah, he goes out of his way to really insult Janeway. And I can only think that it's part of the continuum, which is just so disturbing. Yeah. I mean, um, Tuvok aptly puts it that the Q have an absence of manners. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. So another dangerous thing I find about John Delancey Q is that he, in multiple instances, uses the temptation of getting them back to Earth as a bargaining chip or as something to manipulate Janeway or attempt to manipulate. Janeway will not be manipulated. <laughs> she will hold her ground. But 
it's a really low blow and it's something that I think affects Janeway more than we see because imagine I mean even in this episode when Janeway holds the hearing to see if Quinn is okay to commit suicide and Tuvok is his representative because Vulcans have a suicide ritual that is still in practice for people who have extenuating circumstances and a right to die and all of this stuff and so he becomes his advocate and Janeway is the judge. This is something that Q uses as a bribe to her is hey I'll bring you back to earth right now. Don't you miss your families? Don't you want to go home? Isn't this what this entire show is about? You know and I think it's always in the back of her mind is thinking of other ways to get home thinking of how to alleviate some of that guilt she has of being the one who made the decision to destroy the array and so I think she carries around a lot of that guilt and Q uses that to his advantage it's something I'm not surprised that Q is doing but I'm always just mad about it it's like a special type of awful he has the power to do so but won't do it if she doesn't do what he wants Yeah, it's so dirty. It's so gross. And Q's argument against Quinn committing suicide is that it would throw the continuum into chaos because if one person has their individual rights to death, then what about other people who also agree with him and think that the continuum is useless and we don't do anything and we just sit around all day? The continuum in general is worried that this will open the floodgates to a lot of individual actions that they do not approve of. And it's crazy that Q is the one representing the continuum in this trial because we know Q hates the continuum. They threw him out in Next Generation. He was mortal for a little while. So it's crazy to see that Q is now on the straight and narrow path. And one of the most interesting scenes I found in this episode was when Quinn and Q take Tuvok and Janeway to the continuum. Mm -hmm. But it is a... Uh, a, like a version that they can understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if they were like walking through Saturn or whatever, they like wouldn't get it. Like yeah. whatever the continuum really looks like. Absolutely. But their perception of it is a deserted ghost town where everyone just plays pinball all day or reads a book and doesn't move. It's just dusty and dry and no one yeah. does anything. Quinn says, you know, I've done everything here I possibly can think of. I've done my sewing. I've been the scarecrow. You know, and yeah. Q's like, everyone's done the scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Love that, yeah. This really reminded me of The Good Place, actually. And this is huge. I was going to say that, too. This is huge spoilers for The Good Place. So if you haven't seen it or are not done with it, skip this section mm-hmm. for a second. But at the finale of The Good Place, as soon as they get to The Good Place, at the end of the show, they find out that everyone hates it because Mm -hmm. everything is wonderful all of the time. Yeah. And there's no end. And that's what makes life worth living is that there's an end. Yeah, there's this immortal listlessness going on in the continuum. I think that's a really good analogy, Ashlyn. Yeah, you know, I also thought, at least from a philosophical perspective, that they did a really good job of talking about the closed-mindedness of the continuum when it comes to suicide and when it comes to mortality because this is a whole species who is immortal and that is their practice is being immortal and is living despite you know and continuing on regardless of if you have nothing to do or if you've been living for the entirety of existence 
He kind of reminded me of Plato's Mino, where he talks about Socrates and how he was sentenced to death for talking to young students about philosophy and about his own philosophies and how that was not allowed during that time and that he was put to death for it. And so this is similar to Quinn, is that he was this philosopher who advocated for ritual suicide and saying if we're not satisfied with life, we should have the right to end it. We shouldn't have immortality forced upon us. In a way, it's this own type of Borg situation where it's just a collective of members who are unable to escape from it and unable to have the individuality enough to make these choices. Yes, you can go and start a war between the Vulcans and the Romulans, and that's exactly what he did. Or you can go and drop the apple on Isaac Newton's head, which is what he did. You know, you can go and do all this stuff, which gives you the semblance of freedom and power and control but at the end of the day you don't have it because you don't have the most fundamental thing that makes life important which is the dying part and that's what brings life meaning is knowing that it's going to end and so this is such an important episode I think because we're talking about these deep issues in the fact that we're talking about it with our John Nathan Delancey Q who has changed so much to be so against it in the beginning and so for the continuum and advocating for them he's not joking around as much he is not gallivanting around the galaxy creating problems for picard or for starfleet instead he's trying to condone this guy to eternity of imprisonment and he also gets into janeway's bed without her consent all this stuff you know he does this with picard too he has a streak of in the smallest of terms, having a lack of manners, but in the largest of terms, being negligent about people's boundaries and not using consent. I think that this episode brings out a lot of those flaws in him that we can sort of shrug away when we're seeing him with Picard because the antics are fun or the antics are, I mean, obviously we don't shrug them away. We realize that Pew is problematic. That's why he's a part of the villain series. But I think it's interesting because I find him way more of a villain in Voyager than I do in The Next Generation, even though he introduced them to the Borg. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, by the end of this episode, our John Delancey Q is inspired by Quinn because in the end, despite the bribes, despite everything, Janeway does choose to grant Quinn amnesty, which means that he will be mortal and he can choose to kill himself and that's exactly what he does. For a moment, we think, oh, maybe he's just going to join the crew. Maybe he'll be in astrometrics or something <laughs> for the rest of our journey home because Janeway really encourages him that you might enjoy mortal life. You're going to experience things that you never would have in the continuum. But Q does not. And he ends up killing himself with a rare form of hemlock mm -hmm. that is very poisonous. And... Of course, the doctor does not keep that poison on the ship, and so the only one who could have gotten it for him is Q, our John Delancey. And he did. So, yeah. yeah, he did. And we see him turn in this because he's really moved by Quinn's final words and by his devotion to his opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we see the rebirth of our trickster Q again at the end of this episode. Sorry, I just talk about Socrates a lot. I don't remember his final words, but essentially when everyone's gathered around his bed as he's dying from the poison, because he also is forced to drink poison, that's his form of execution from the state, and he says, do not grieve for me because this is the step that I had to take in order for people to understand what I was trying to teach them about philosophy. And though he died for his cause, he was not afraid to die, and he was not 
concerned about the death itself, but more about the fact that the state was messed up and that the system needed to change. And I think that this is similar to what happens with Quinn here, is that his death does create a shift in the continuum, because this is the first cue to die. I mean, if we think about it, this is a new experience for the continuum, and it throws them into a civil war, as we see in Q and the Grey. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> Our regular Q, Jonathan Delancey, is hitting. I like that you're saying Jonathan Delancey also. Oh, it's is really it cute. Oh, you're just sorry. like, oh, my good friend Jonathan. Jonathan. <laughs> Mr. Delancey. <laughs> okay, well, Mr. Delancey here. <laughs> he is trying to make Jadeway have a baby with him. What? What? What is going on? Ashlyn, yeah. tell us about this. This is a weird episode because it appears lighthearted, but I find it a little bit hard to stomach that Q is basically forcing himself upon Janeway and saying, you have to have a baby with me. The whole crew is trying to figure out on her orders what Q is up to, which I think is great. She's yeah. just no BS. And the rest of the crew is that way too, because Q is trying to play with them and he goes on the holodeck with them. And instead of playing along, they're just like, you need to stop this. You need to tell us what's going on. And yeah. I love that. Yeah, they're the not going to play out Robin Hood with, with no. you. <laughs> no, they will not. They are not merry men. No, absolutely not. Yeah. So what all of this leads to is that there is a civil war, just like Q mentioned there might be. So Quinn, the act of him committing suicide and having his Socrates-esque death it did indeed inspire a movement and it's led by q so q found his mojo back and he has warriors i guess on his side and he's fighting against the continuum and his idea for fixing this whole problem is instead of being engulfed in war which is really affecting the mortal people like there's supernovas going off everywhere there's three supernovas in a week which is unheard of normally it's like once a century in one area Mm -hmm. q thinks that the answer is a baby a messiah he literally says just some new blood in the continuum and he specifically wants it to be human dna that's why he wants to mate with janeway because he believes that humanity has some of the best genes and he wants to introduce them into the continuum and i just thought that was so hilarious because of everything that we've seen in next generation where he's trying to prove that humans are the worst and that they're barbaric and beneath them and not even worth noticing that now he wants their dna to end a dispute that's so far above humans yeah I just thought that was really wild, and it made me understand that Q really loves humans. <laughs> Q really loves Picard, and he really loves yeah. what Picard taught him about humanity, and I think he took that to heart, <laughs> like we all did. We all took all good things to heart. <laughs> My daily rant about Tom Paris is the fact that they all take this way too lightly that Q is trying to force himself upon Janeway, and not all of them, but like for the most part, besides Janeway, they're all just like, ha ha. Q, you're embarrassing yourself. That's literally what Tom says to Q. And that's not embarrassing. That's assaulting behavior. And I just want to point that out. That, like, this is not something that is just a fun old time. He's putting Janeway in sexy bathrobes without her permission and coming into her quarters and all of this stuff. 
I just don't think that they would take it that lightly if it were someone like Picard. If he, I mean, and Q did try to, you know, had some moments where it seems like he was trying to come on to Picard, but... Well, Q did show up in his bed and yeah. I think changed him into his nightclothes as well. Yeah, exactly. So he, Q has a bad understanding of the word no, and I hate it. Another thing I don't like about this is that the only female Q we ever meet is a love interest, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, before Voyager, we had never even met another Q. We met the one who's Sean's dad and Psyche. Oh my god, you're right. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, when Q's mortal. Okay, Mm -hmm. you're right. Okay, yeah, the jury rests. You're right, Rihanna. (laughs) Yeah, this is another episode where Q tries to bribe Janeway with Earth again, (laughs) too, which is irritating. He's like, hey, sleep with me and I'll get you home. It's like, what? What? (laughs) Yeah, half the episode I was just like, what? And then they're doing Civil War parallels from American history. I'm like, can we not right now with these old American parallels? (laughs) I thought that it was a very serious transition because this episode goes from being lighthearted and Q's just trying to evade his lover Mm -hmm. of four millennia or whatever and then suddenly they're in the middle of a civil war and Q creates this reenactment for her benefit because she is an American woman That's the only civil war she can, what, have context for, which is crazy. Like, Jamie knows history. I would have loved to see them play out the eugenics war or something. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Yeah. Because at least we would have learned more about it. (laughs) Yeah, something not so problematic as the civil war. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was just, it got really serious when Q got shot and he's totally surrounded by the continuum. And in fact... Janeway goes to try to stop the continuum from shooting at Q and says that he has a plan for peace. Listen to him, even if it's a dumb plan, like you should at least listen to him. And that doesn't happen. And so they tie up Q and Janeway and are just about to execute them before the Voyager crew of all people are holding Q continuum weapons and they're shooting at the Q. Yeah, with the help of the female Q. Yeah, I was really quaking because I thought we were going to see maybe some of Q's friends who were banding together with him, but no. (laughs) Yeah, apparently he has a whole freedom faction, but we don't really see much of them besides running around shooting. I was surprised at the shift, but I I know they're also trying to bring gravity to how desperate this situation is within the Q. That they are so threatened by this idea of having individual rights (laughs) that they're willing to murder everyone for it well yeah and i think it's important like since we talked about you know his shift after quinn dies i mean beginning when quinn's on trial q says social order versus anarchy and now that he's a part of this freedom faction he has truly switched his whole idea and he is now the anarchist (laughs) and i I don't know i just i I find that parallel to be really cool and something i do admire about q and i'm excited to hear more about in picard season two to see where's the continuum at these days like are they okay we did not talk about q2 which is the episode with his son because we talked about in the family series and frankly i didn't want to see that little b again (laughs) (laughs) also q he's not really a villain episode no exactly but yeah yeah anyway i'm just very excited to see q in the future exactly absolutely i can't wait okay so now we're gonna move to sulan which you might remember him better as being the main surgeon for the vidians and the vidians are a terrifying race of 
people only because they have been plagued by a plague. And the way that they survive is that they take body parts from other species and add them to themselves. So you can just live forever because you're like, oh, my face got blown off. I'll replace my face with someone else's. Yeah. Oh, I need that heart. They got so good at doing surgeries and operations that they can just make any body part work much like we do for cars and airplanes. Yeah, they're organ harvesters. So scary for the people who are being caught, which in this episode is Paris, Bolana, and this guy named Durst. And who's going to make it out? <laughs> Not Durst. <laughs> <laughs> he gets his face cut off and put on the main Vidian guy, Sulan. Sulan's face. Terrifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He experiments on Bolana, and she is split into Klingon and human. I don't know how this happens. They're not specific about how this technology works, but it's clear that Sulan has the ability to split your DNA just like into two people. Like, did he have a body growing in his lab? Right. I don't know, but he basically has one Balana that's pure human and one Balana that's pure Klingon. And the idea is that since they're from the Alpha Quadrant, the phage has never encountered these forms of life. And so, Theoretically, one of them could have DNA that will fight against the phage. And it turns out that the Klingon DNA actually does, which, you know, I'm not surprised. Klingons are strong AF and they can fight anything. And so Balana, her Klingon Balana, is very resistant to the phage and she's fighting it fairly well. Fortunately, his research does not go too far because it's Bolana, and we have to save Bolana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we know that Bolana is going to be okay because this is early on in the season. But this episode is great introspection into Bolana and her character. And I really wanted to shout out Roxanne Dawson for this episode because she just does a marvelous job of portraying the Klingon and human side. Klingon Bolana saves herself, her human self, from the Vidians and takes charge and is just a badass like constantly but also human balana is okay to experience her emotions as they come and is very in tune with herself emotionally and with paris and everything and so we get to see these two sides of her it's very enemy within but klingons aren't as bad as evil kirk mm. <laughs> uh and especially klingon balana is more awesome than evil kirk could ever dream of being <laughs> absolutely <laughs> These Vidians, it's understandable that they're trying to save their species, but they're literally capturing all of these different species. There's a Talaxian who is in prison. We know that he's probably going to get cut up. It's just awful that they will go to any length to try to save themselves, including murdering all these people. Yeah, there's a couple terrifying episodes with the Vidians where once they've taken over the ship, you know it's not going to end well. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to talk about Sulan just because he is the lead scientist and he truly thinks that he's making a difference for his people and he's thanking Bolana for her sacrifice. Like this whole time he's doing tests on her and everything, he truly believes it's for the better. I do wonder if maybe this is another awkward situation where what if Bolana had agreed to give her cells over for studying, but not like her body. Yeah, because then perhaps they could have developed a cure that would have stopped their murderous intent. I don't know. It reminds me of the Herogen that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, yeah, it really does. 
But before we get to the Herogen. Yeah, let's go on to Chaotica. <laughs> we haven't talked he... about Chaotica. We talked about Moriarty, yeah. so. <laughs> if there's not one good holodeck episode in there, you know. <laughs> Particularly Voyager. They have some very good holodeck episodes. And this one excels in my mind because it's, first of all, an homage to the old sci-fi film style. It's an homage to movies like Metropolis and Trip to the Moon. You know, the old, old black and white pictures that really spearheaded the sci-fi movie revolution and of course this is sci-fi this is the star trek that's the crux of it is it's sci-fi and so i'm really glad that they had an acknowledgement to this you know and of course it's paris who develops this program because it's just sexist enough and it's just dicey enough that like he enjoys it (laughs) no i'm i jest but it's kind of true yeah, this really was bringing me back to old Who, old Doctor Who. So I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that, Rihanna. Uh, classic Who, even I think like the first season was in black and white. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have villains who are made out of hilarious materials. Proton's robot looks like he was made of three pieces of cardboard painted silver. So <laughs> Exactly. And even somewhat, I thought it was a uh, allusion to old Trek because mm. especially when you're looking up at Chaotica's castle on the hill, it's clearly a matte painting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they like have, so much old Trek. Yeah. They have the dramatic zoom ins, which remind me of old Trek. They have the music, you know, the big scores, the big orchestra that mm-hmm. they used to have for Star Trek and... Oh, it's just, it's it's lovely because we also get the archetypal villain and we get the Chaotica villain whose full intent is to be sexist and to take over the galaxy, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this holodeck adventure is interrupted at the beginning of the episode. Tom is Captain Proton. Harry is uh, his sidekick. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know what Harry's like name <laughs> yeah. is. But there's these weird anomalies that start appearing in the holodeck. And Voyager is stuck in space. They, It's like being caught, Bolana says, on a sand dune. I also think about in a snowstorm when your car is just spinning the wheels and yep. you're just digging yourself deeper in the snow. Mm-hmm. They're just stuck because of these anomalies. And we find out that it's a layer of subspace has opened, which this area of space i guess has a lot of unstable subspace is what seven says Mm -hmm. and um some people come out of the weird anomalies (laughs) yeah they're are they from another program they're holodecks from well no not from another program they are a species of photogenic beings photogenic (laughs) they're very beautiful beings so so picturesque (laughs) no i'm so sorry photonic beings so you know how we're carbon life forms Mm -hmm. they are made of light and um energy like yeah yeah, like the doctor yeah exactly and they think that the world around them the holodeck world is the real one and i love that they allude to this because they call them invaders from the fifth dimension and it essentially is a different dimension the holodeck you know and it does feel that way whenever we're in a holodeck episode that we're in the fifth dimension and they have these invaders coming so uh, they have to play along with it and say the only way to get us free from these photonic life forms is to play the holodeck game. Yeah, I felt really bad for these uh, photonic people because they say right away that they are um, that they're here to contact and learn from other photonic life forms, mm-hmm. and they're explorers. So they're not much different from Starfleet. 
And so it's so sad that their first interaction with humanity is this evil program and with with Chaotica. He executes one of the two people oh, right away. He sends ships to murder other photonic beings. And I think like 50 people die in this episode because of Chaotica. And so this is just so sad because these people are just here to explore. And so what a disaster of a diplomacy mission. Literally, oh my god, those poor people. And the only way to stop this is to have Janeway pose as the bride of Chaotica. And the only one who, essentially the only one who can tame Chaotica is the bride because he thinks that they're in love, but really she just uses her pheromone potion to get, get him <laughs> to do what she wants. <laughs> and we get to see Janeway act as Chaotica or as the bride of Chaotica, which is just marvelous. It's so much fun to see Kate Mulgrew being Janeway, being the bride. <laughs> yeah, I love whenever there's two layers or more mm-hmm. in these types of situations that actors have to play. It is so much fun. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it does hearken us back to this stereotypical villain who just wants world domination and who is easily manipulated by women's wiles. <laughs> yeah, he Chaotica is someone who is very bold and he says what he wants, and he goes after it, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's not that smart. He nope. has minions that he relies upon. I would say he's like the original villain. Like, if you think of a villain, it's Chaotica. Yep. He has even a death ray. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> what so, villain is not complete without their death ray? So. Even Dr. Horrible has a death ray. I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, thanks, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, for yeah. that. Thanks, Joss so, yeah. yeah, I love that they show how ridiculous the romance is in these old-timey sci-fi programs as well well because at one point Chaotica and his servant both fall to Janeway's wiles. They say the most ridiculous things Mm -hmm. like, oh, the air is shimmering with your radiance. (laughs) And I I just love it. Like... (laughs) Yeah. It's so ridiculous, but so funny. Oh my gosh. And when uh, Chaotica finally learns that Janeway has been deceiving him, he actually threatens rape. Which yeah, is he does. Something that we have to talk about because he says um, that I will kill you after our wedding night. So, like, yep. it's, you know, very much an assumption of what he's going to do to her. And that is also something that I think we must remember about these old villains is that the uh, violence against women that is enacted in these stories often. And, like, we see it with the with Proton's secretary, I guess she is, because women have no other role to be secretary in these days, in these old programs. And she's always the one getting captured and tied up and screaming and at the mercy I, of the villain. I actually think she has no lines in this episode. She I think she screams, screams only. Yeah, yeah, I think you're correct, Ashlyn. So uh, another element that makes them appear even more dangerous is the fact that they're just like merciless to women. And yep. it's, yeah, it's... Ugh. Not great. I also think that we're lucky that Chaotica is not smart because he has every villainous bone in his body, but no brain. Yeah. So that's that's what stops him from like walking off the holodeck like Moriarty. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they did not program him to be smarter than Tuvok, so we're good there. <laughs> Man, that's rule number one. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> 
Okay, so I think now just to completely offset, let's talk about a villain who only has smart bones in his body and is still villainous, but not as bad as Chaotica. Uh-huh. And I am strangely talking about Anorex. No, mm. no, not A-Rex from the animated series. <laughs> Anorex from the episode Year of Hell, part one and two. Ah, uh, yes. We discussed him in our time travel series. So we won't be focusing on the time travel elements so much as where they go as so much as he uses it as a weapon <laughs> Yeah, uh, for his own gain. Wow, Year of Hell, of course, phenomenal episode. And I honestly have to say that I think Anorex is one of the better villains in Voyager. I think that he is one of the better written ones and one that has multi-tiers. It felt way more like the writing in Deep Space Nine for villains because I just feel like they spent a lot of time thinking about his motivation in these episodes and the fact that we get to see him nearly influence Chakotay here and get him on his side and all of this stuff is really telling to his power and to his character that he's quite convincing and his cause in a way seems very noble because he's just trying to bring back his family but there's more to that because he's erasing entire species to do so and he is he has been manipulating time for 200 years in order to attempt to recover one planet. Yeah, this is someone who falls into a trap that is maybe a little overdone, but it's it's because it's really relatable. He's someone who is obsessed with getting back the life that he once had, mm-hmm. and he is a super genius, basically. So he has the whim, he tells Chakotay, to control everything from a single molecule to an entire civilization, and he can alter its history, which is power. Being able to control time is extremely powerful and something that a villain like Khan would absolutely love, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so I think I think we're lucky in a way that Anorex has not set his sights on a different part of the galaxy because if he was, if this was taking place in the Alpha Quadrant, we would have a lot of beloved characters be erased from time. Ashton said, I don't care about those randos getting erased from time. <laughs> I care about the Alpha Quadrant supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, I'm just calling you out. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, obviously, I'm Alpha Quadrant-ist because I have seen so many more people. Yeah, Rihanna's like, sure, sure, whatever you want to say. (laughs) I'm thinking about that, too. I don't want Anorex to erase Vulcan or Kronos or any of our amazing homeworlds. Only J.J. Abrams can erase uh, Vulcan. (laughs) I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you went there. (laughs) Rihanna's really angry at me. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess let's let's break down the situation for you a little bit. So there's these two warring sects. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not bringing back the word. (laughs) There are these two warring civilizations, the Zal and the the Krenim. So Voyager initially makes contact with both of them, and the Zal is really cool and is very helpful and says, yeah, you can go through our space. It's no problem. Do whatever you need to do to get home. Very welcoming. But the Krenim, every interaction they have with them is very aggressive. Aggressive only. (laughs) And Yeah. yeah, he says, you can't go through our space. The Zal laugh at them because they say, oh, a hundred years ago, maybe they had really powerful time ships and they ruled the whole quadrant. But now there's only a couple of random ships that are making great claims. 
And in a couple minutes, that poor guy dies because <laughs> the Krenim and Anorex specifically does some calculations. And with his time ship or temporal weapon, uh, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, is able to go back in time and restore 98% of the Krenim Empire. So now the Zal basically don't exist. All of the other species that currently existed in that sector are gone. Mm-hmm. And Anorex is not even celebrating this because the tiny little planet that he wanted to bring back that has his family on it did not become restored. And what he finds out during this episode is that it's Voyager's fault is why all of his calculations are off because they are an unknown part of the equation, literally. Mm -hmm. And he is obsessed with this. And so this is what we see when him and Chakotay are really talking after Chakotay's captured on his ship. They, They both start to believe that it's possible. If I just do enough calculations, I can bring them back. Yeah, ooh, it's just, it's a slippery slope, and I think this is something that, it's just interesting because I think that type of time weapon, it can be sort of addictive, you know, and it can be something that can draw people in, it definitely drew Chakotay in, and it would be addicting to try and redo the timeline to get it right. No wonder he's been doing this for 200 years, because I think if you have this sort of mindset of, it's just this one thing, you can do it for however long you want, because you have this time weapon. And so I think that Anorax can never be satisfied, you know, and his ultimate goal is to bring back his wife. But I think even then, the satisfaction isn't quite there, because he wants everything to go exactly perfectly. And it's all about his calculations. And about, oh, let me change this one element. And you're right, Voyager is this chaotic element that is unpredictable, especially because they keep fighting back. And every time there's a temporal incursion, Voyager's there to try and stop Anorax. Yeah, you know, Voyager is literally going through hell, as it says in the title, and seeing how resilient this crew is, despite having basically nothing going right on the ship, Tuvok's blind. Everyone has a terrible time. And yet Janeway is saying, we got to keep going. We got to rescue Jaco Day and Tom. We got to keep fighting through because there will be a way to win. And I think going up against a villain like this really brings out the resilience and bravery in the Voyager crew. It also brings out a type of obsession in Janeway that is a little bit frightening to me. I think that we learn very quickly on that Janeway is someone who will shirk Starfleet protocol in order to get her crew home and in order to keep her crew safe because they're in the Wild West here. They're in a completely uncharted area of space with these villains coming from every section and she's relieved that the Zal are kind to them once and just let them pass through space in the beginning of this episode because it's not someone that they have to be watching their back for every couple of hours or days or weeks and so I think the fear and the agitation of constantly being pursued and she's lost so many crew members in this year of hell that she completely neglects herself and she neglects what is best for her and her mental health and to an extent I understand it that's very captain of her you know is to set aside everything about herself in order to help her crew but so much so that she doesn't listen to the doctor when he says that she's unfit for duty and uh she is so determined to win this battle and to win each battle to win this war that is the year of hell that 
she becomes sort of obsessed with it in her own way, you know, and obsessed with saving the crew. And it's very noble. And I really appreciate this about her is because the, the only reason that we're out of this year of hell is because she does a kamikaze run, essentially. And she chooses a collision course with her and Voyager running into Anorak's ship, which is the dramatic irony of it all, is that if he had just destroyed his temporal weapon in the first place, he would be back where he started with his wife. And this is exactly what happens. But see, that's the thing that so many people can't realize is the thing that you think will save you is sometimes the thing that's driving you crazy. And if you're relying on something like a time ship or whatever else it is in your life that you're like, this is going to make my life better. I know it is. And you're so obsessed over it. You got to let it go, man. Yeah. Yeah. You got to let it go. Just run into it. (laughs) Yeah. You got it. Yeah, exactly. You got to let go of that power and he wouldn't have done it himself. And I think Janeway was kind of getting towards like Ahab and the whale Mm -hmm. type situation. And I think it starts a trend with her or like an ongoing theme that we're going to see for the rest of the series. Because even though at the end it's all wiped from their memories, Mm -hmm. they don't remember the year of hell, it never happened. We know that she's obsessed with getting home. And sometimes that obsession rears its head again. And, you know, it comes back very fiercely in the finale where she literally goes back in time to and erases save all the crew. <laughs> does a lot of what Anorax did, erasing yeah. people's uh-huh. past lives. And lives. Yeah, yeah, just to get the crew home. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Ashlyn, it's such a good point. And a question I have about Anorax before we move on is, do you think that he'll make this mistake again? Because we see at the end of the episode that he is obsessing over his numbers uh, on his pad. And then his wife comes in and is like, come take a walk with me outside. And he's like, just a minute, hon. I got to do these calculations. And she's like, please, we never spend time with each other anymore. And he's like, okay. And he takes her hand and they walk away. But the last shot we see of Anorax is of his pad and of his calculations. And so I'm wondering, is this a loop? Is this going to happen again and again? I don't know. And I was wondering that. And it leads, you can assume both ways because he does say to his wife, Oh, I think I can make time for that. Like, you know, so part of me thinks maybe 1% of him does remember or has an inclination that, Oh, maybe I shouldn't keep working (laughs) because this could go wrong. And maybe he did learn his lesson even in a subconscious way. But yeah, that last shot was really threatening. So I'm not sure. I uh, still think, like I said in the time travel series, that they should just bring Anorax back and make a movie. Yeah. Because that was awesome. That was awesome. Year of Hell is so epic. And I'm glad we got to talk about it again through this villain lens. Yeah. What about you, Rihanna? Did you have an inclination either way? Oh, I think it's definitely going to happen again. I think (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a lot of faith in Anorax to make these life-altering decisions without even realizing his mistake in the first place and I think this is what captures him in this loop shall we say and of course Voyager is on his way so in Voyager's timeline maybe they won't be the interfering factor this time but I think either way he's still going to create this he's still going to be obsessed with time and he's still going to lose his wife along the way maybe it won't be in the same nature maybe it won't be from the disease that occurred after he tried to fix another thing but yeah the more things you try to alter the worse it gets and this is what i think he's never gonna learn (laughs) sadly well you know what rihanna 
at least he's not in the alpha quadrant. (laughs) (laughs) So he can't do it to us. (laughs) Not my quadrant, not my problem. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Well, um... Ashlyn, you want to talk about the hunt? <laughs> oh, okay. So our uh, single evil men se- section has ended, and now we are leading up into the group of villains section, which will take us, shoot us right to the end of this pod. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I want to talk about the hunt, and these episodes are back to back uh called hunters and then prey right after that and Mm -hmm. i thought it was interesting because these episodes are pretty linked and i was surprised that they were not considered a Mm two-parter um i for anyone wondering i consider this herogen essential viewing (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you're interested in the (laughs) herogen so yeah these are some really I think maybe forgettable villains, but they are worth talking about because they give Voyager a hell of a hard time, don't they? Yeah, oh my. So basically the Herogen are just hunters and they kind of remind me of early Klingons in like the the movies like like especially the third or fifth star trek movies where you just have klingons as the bad guys randomly hunting ships down just because they want to have fun yeah and this is what the herogen are doing too except with a lot less humor yeah um, (laughs) they are obsessed with hunting and the sneakier the prey is the more happy they are and they think that if you capture a really good prey, oh man, you're going to heaven and you're having a great life and you get to have all these trophies all over your ship. So they love... Talking, sorry, we're not talking like golden trophies. We're talking about body part trophies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we are, the Olympics are going on right now. They don't have any gold medals on the wall. They have like heads Souls. of species. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Voyager has found a relay in the middle of the Delta Quadrant, and they have actually gotten a message from Starfleet through it, just randomly. And it turns out to be letters from home, and also secret uh, secret messages to Janeway about like from Starfleet about what to do. Um, and so that's kind of the main plot of this, but the subplot is that the Herogen are angry that they're using their relay mm-hmm. and they are going to hunt down Voyager. They're saying, get off our relay. <laughs> yeah. And the crazy thing is that the Herogens created this relay with a singularity, which is a black hole. So this way station has a black hole in the middle, and so that's very dangerous to tamper with. You're playing with fire if you're using a black hole to power your relay. And as we see, because it collapses in on itself at the end of this episode, Janeway, or no, Tulak and Seven are captured, and they're so tiny compared to the Herogen. The Herogen are like these big, massive creatures. They're like yeah. so tall. And even Tulak's is really tall, but he's so tiny compared to them. And... Uh, Literally, like, the Herogen just run around saying things like, the hunt was not satisfying. <laughs> Strong prey makes for a better hunt. <laughs> like, they just they have these little catchphrases, you know? And Tuvok says that they, ha- they lack a, quote, moral center, which is true. Yeah. This is very much the crux of the problem with the Herogen, is Ashlyn said they're, quote, obsessed with hunting, but I'm going to go further to say that this is literally integrated into their culture, that the hunt is the reason that the Herogen live. 
this is the reason that they find any sort of passion in life and aren't <laughs> the species that they are is because they rely on the hunt. And this is what literally the whole culture is about. They're a nomadic race who just goes around finding the most cunning prey to hunt down and kill. And that's about it, you know? And so this, this can be very dangerous because they are a chaotic element. They don't have any morals to guide themselves by and so they just hunt whoever they want and we see in this next episode prey that they hunt species 8472 that was their first mistake (laughs) yes their greatest mistake because 8472 made a literal shrine of bodies out of these hunters (laughs) (laughs) and that's why oh you know these voyager writers are so clever because now the herogen are the prey and that's why that's the title of this episode (laughs) The hunters become the hunted. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, this is interesting, too, because when Janeway sees the Herojin ship at the beginning of this episode, Tom is like, oh, let's run away because these guys seem annoying. And Janeway's (laughs) like, no, we have to settle this dispute. And I really admire that she's like, you know, I don't want to keep making enemies in the Delta Quadrant. I'm just going to settle this. We're going to talk it out and we're going to keep going home. Yeah. So her stopping is what spawns this episode because it's actually not a ship full of herogens it's full of one herogen who barely escaped an attack by species 8274 is that right nope nope <laughs> 8472 the dyslexia brain does not like the numbers yeah 8472 and yeah so he's really messed up and so they bring him on board the doctor looks at him he kind of refuses to be treated but the doctor does anyway uh i think at one point janeway asked in this episode Who's hunting the hunters? (laughs) (laughs) That was a pretty good Janeway. Thank you. Yeah, so this is not the first time we're hearing about Species 8472, but we wanted to talk about them in our Herogen section because I really actually appreciated the direction they took in this episode where this 8472 single creature has been stranded in normal space because 8472 exists in fluidic space and they were the only ones left behind when species 8472 exited normal space back into fluidic (laughs) space i almost said yeeted but they can yeet to and from normal and fluidic space yeah you know they're really good at yeeting so they left them behind this species this one individual and they're trapped on the ship and being hunted by the Herogen. And so they act in the only way that they can, like a you know, frightened animal or frightened prey of fighting back. And Species 8472 is very good at fighting back. They're very dangerous. And so we see Janeway try to broker a negotiation saying, well, why don't we just get rid of 8472, send them back to their fluidic space, and then you can go on peacefully with your life. But of course, the Erosians will hop down to this because especially a prey that killed a bunch of their men, they want to hunt down to the death. And they find the hunt to be very satisfying when it's challenging like this and when they're facing a certain death. It's like an adrenaline spike for them. So that is against their beliefs and they do not want to follow this treaty. And also 7 of 9 does not want to let species 8472 go. She wants to see this creature killed (laughs) and she wants to see it happen. She doesn't care how the Herogen can do it. She doesn't mind (laughs) because she is aware of how dangerous they are because they have killed millions of drones of borg drones and so yeah they're very uh very terrifying and someone that seven does not want to treat lightly but janeway has the compassion to understand this 
creatures all alone, and they should have a right to get back to their group in Philitic space. Yeah, Seven says that this is the only species to elude the Borg. So that's all you need to know about species 8472. If the Borg can't get them, it's not looking good for the Herogen. <laughs> yeah, literally. Seven, she succeeds in <laughs> eating the creature 8472 right off the ship because she just goes rogue and kills it on her own. Yeah. Oof. Right? I think, does she open like a holiday? She opens the doors or well, something? the species gets free, and then she's like, well, it's fleeing, so bye. Yeah. Um, oof. Yeah, so it, it is interesting to see these two species interacting with each other, these two major villains that we've faced before and know are... I mean, obviously the Herogen are not as strong as the Borg or Species 8472, but... It is interesting to see the tide turn and see them become the prey here. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I think these two episodes really give us a good grasp on the Herogen that they are not similar to the Kazon. Like, they're not a united species. They never talk about, like, the Herogen homeworld or anything like that. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're nomadic. Um, so so then when we see the episode The Killing Game, part one and two, we actually meet someone who is not at all like the Herogens that we've met so far in Voyager. I think it's just the leader is <laughs> yeah. what he's called throughout the episodes. Uh-huh. So this group of Herogen hunters captures Voyager and he forces all of them to participate in different programs on the holodeck. And he's running, I feel like four, like three, like, or maybe more simulations. Yeah. And they're all from different earth time periods. Um, there's a Klingon one. And his point is that he wants to study his prey and see how humans react in all of these different circumstances in order to hunt them more effectively. That's what he's telling his people. And I, I've never seen this before in a, a villain. I've never seen them force a, a crew to undergo all of these crazy tests. The only one who really knows the extent of all of their injuries that the crew are receiving is the doctor because every time after they make Janeway a Klingon and then kick her ass, they send her to the doctor and he fixes her broken ribs Mm -hmm. and heals her and then sends her right back into battle, say in like World War II instead. And so the doctor knows that this is only going to get worse and people are are getting more and more injured. And in fact, there was a fatality. We don't get the name of this poor red shirt, but someone died because of this simulation. Yeah, this is a really dark premise because they're using Voyager's own holodeck against them, their own recreational activity to hurt them and manipulate them. And the thing is, too, is that they have these neural suppressants, and so they don't even remember who they are. And so they are ripped of their sense of self and identity. They think they're just characters in the holodeck. The reason that this leader, Herogen, is doing this is because he wants to find an alternative to the killing and the endless hunt that is the Herogen species and the Herogen society. He's trying to alter the way that the Herogen hunt. And he says, if we can start hunting holograms instead of the real thing, maybe we can change our society and make it something that starts to move away from 
needless slaughter all the time and we can actually build something and create and so he is trying to make these fundamental changes and he knows that he's going to face a lot of opposition and even the Herogen subordinate that he talks to about this is like that's not going to fly with anyone like the hunt is too ingrained in our society like we have nothing if we don't hunt and a lot of people don't find the holograms satisfying enough to kill even though they have the safeties turned off and the protocols and everything but it's different you know and they have to make sure that the people are cunning enough that they're fun prey to hunt and all of this stuff and so it is horrible that he's experimenting on this voyager crew but it's also interesting to see that that's his motivation is he's trying to change his entire civilization into a more productive direction yeah and kind of fits our theme of like what we were talking about with q that we have once again one person who is trying to go against the grain Mm -hmm. of what is normalized in their culture and change it for the better i kept seeing parallels between the continuum and the herogen you know not in their like most basic sense but just in the fact that both of them are just needing change (laughs) and I thought this quote was funny because in the conversation with Janeway, the leader says, no one will remember the name of the Herogen if we do not change. And literally, they're the least memorable villains because they do not change. And I only remembered them in our villain series. When I was going through some episodes, I saw a Herogen in a Nazi uniform, and I was like, hang on a second. Hold on. what yeah (laughs) what's going on here and then i was like oh yeah those dudes they were pretty mean this leader ends up dying at the Mm -hmm. end and not just dying but being murdered by his subordinate yep because they couldn't stand what he was doing and thought it was pointless and to be fair they were sick of running around in matter that wasn't even real (laughs) (laughs) yeah again we see that the delta quadrant has species who are not technologically advanced maybe it's because the borg is so prevalent in the delta quadrant and so any of the technology the highly technological species that used to exist in the delta quadrant were assimilated that's my best guess even in the gamma quadrant we have highly technologically advanced species like the um, jemhadar and the dominion and all of that so my only assumption is that it was the because of Borg influence in the Delta Quadrant, but it seems like a lot of cultures would have a holodeck. I mean, we see even in Enterprise that they encounter cultures in the Alpha Quadrant who have holodecks way before they even thought of them or were able to conceive them. And so I find it interesting that so many of these villains are utilizing Federation technology against them, you know, and this is the crux of it is that because Voyager is this chaotic element in the Delta Quadrant, they're utilized so much and Voyagers take it over so much because they want the technology. So I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me. It really is. Yeah. This episode, I was really happy that they introduced this new element into the Herogen. It made it very entertaining. So I think now we move on to 8472. Yeah, we're just moving up the food chain here. (laughs) Yeah, moving up the food chain. So we are actually introduced to them before we meet the Mm Herogen in the first episode of season four because the Borg have been absolutely smacked and Voyager's wondering who beat up the Borg. Yeah, I mean, Kess is seeing Borg bodies in her vision. That is not something you see normally. You see Borg bodies moving around assimilating, not dead (laughs) on the floor. (laughs) Not lying on the cold, hard ground. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
this is wild because Voyager stumbles into a large dispute slash war going on between 8472 and the Borg. This is when they are getting ready to enter Borg space. They're like, this is going to be rough. (laughs) We have to prepare. We have to get Voyager up to standards. When they meet 8472 and they realize there is a villain greater than the Borg. There's someone out there who can destroy them. And I gotta say, at least from a writing perspective, I understand why 472 was created. I understand that they have to add intrigue to think, oh, a villain scarier than the Borg. Let's up the stakes here. But I just wish it were more successful. Like with a lot of Voyager villains, and again, I'm not trying to like slash Voyager because I think it's a phenomenal show and what it does well is the character writing for our main characters and the overall story arc is very successful and the Borg arcs are successful but I feel like with 8472 the most intriguing part is the fact that Janeway has to align with the Borg in order for them to get through space as well as try to create a bargaining chip for the Borg. I don't find 8472 as a species to be that scary or that intimidating especially because the Borg have been scary and intimidating since the next generation. So they have a longer standing of fear in my heart, you know? See, and I don't need any of that context for 8472 because I know the Borg so well and to know that there's a species out there that's stronger than them, that's all I need to know. And that terrifies me. And I think the way that their bodies move and how strong they are and fast, they are scary to me. And I think... In some ways, you know, it's, I I can't believe I'm using an FDR quote for this, but (laughs) sometimes the unknown is scarier than the thing itself. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we don't know very much about 8472, I think actually improves them as villains because we didn't have an episode where we found a lost mother 8472 and we helped to reunite (laughs) her with her child, you know, or some some classic Star Trek thing where Mm -hmm. that gets us to sympathize with the villain. We have none of that with them. And we only have episodes where they are kicking our butts (laughs) or the Borgs. I don't mind that, but I totally hear you and I totally understand your perspective. I'm really glad you brought that up though, because I think it's something I hadn't considered But I think you're right. I think here it is done well, and I'm just making assumptions based off all of Star Trek that I've seen. I do think it is cool that they're not humanoid, and they're not just another human with face makeup on, you know, with some, like, random facial feature that makes them look different. I really appreciate that. I feel more comfortable with humanoid aliens because that's just what we see so much in Star Trek, and the fact that they can't really communicate in the ways that we are accustomed to with the Universal Translator, all of that. Like, you're right, just the way they look is really interesting and I would be fascinated to see one of them assimilated by the Borg because like how would you even put implants or nanoprobes in them because the Borg is so accustomed to assimilating humanoid species. Yeah and it's showing that the overused saying the enemy of the enemy is my friend Mm -hmm. doing this with the Borg is something that we never could have expected ever before this in Star Trek. And it's really interesting now knowing that Voyager's about to enter this incredibly dangerous Borg territory that to do it, they're going to team up with the Borg. And that's the deal that they make is we'll help you get rid of this species if you let us pass through. I think it's really admirable that they take this risk, and I think it adds a really different flavor to the Borg. We get to know them in a different way after this, and we even gain a crew member (laughs) because of this. I just think it's really exciting. 
Yeah, I agree. And, oh, it's so interesting hearing Janeway discuss all of these things with the Borg, to see her have these pseudo-negotiations where none of them question the moral implications of this until Chakotay brings up, is this correct to be destroying a species that could be adversarial to the Borg? Is this a good idea? Because then this gives the Borg the upper hand to assimilate more cultures if they're not in the middle of a war with 8472. It gives them the opportunity to become more powerful. It's really, really dicey. It's a really tough line that Janeway is trying to play here. But again, this is her determination to get her crew home really exceeds everything else. You know, this is what her main goal is and she will do anything to make this happen. And she asked for a representative and this is Seven of Nine. This is who we get as a representative to work with them to figure out the nanotechnology that will destroy 8472, all of this stuff. But they're pulled into politic space with 8472. Yeah, I was kind of laughing that they asked for a representative. Janeway's like, we need a Locutus. Literally. <laughs> and Seven at the end of the episode starts going all Borg on them and begins to start assimilating Voyager. And so Chakotay is able to tap into her network and be like, hey girl, you're a human. Hey. Your name's Annika. Yeah, we're gonna Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna let you go. And that's how they're able to get Seven on board and shake the tail of the Borg as well. And they let them go, luckily. For now. Yeah. yeah for now. <laughs> I do wish we had more episodes in them that were like as impactful which is to your point Rihanna yeah and I am curious to just to keep exploring the Star Trek universe and seeing what other cool villains like this we can get and maybe get more info about 8472 absolutely I think it could be done in a way that doesn't feel like we're just hashing out old ones because we just don't know enough about them now it's Borg time it's Borg time I mean resistance is futile we've got to talk about it So the way that Janeway introduces the section of them coming to Borg space is so fun. I love this because they're in a little briefing room and Janeway talks about how she has read everything in Starfleet database available from the moment Q flung the Enterprise into the path of the Borg to the incursion on Earth that happened, you know, which was first contact. So she's really bringing up all of the Star Trek history. And she says that this admiral named Asimov called Borg an evil race, like just through and through evil. And Picard says they are without reason and beyond help. And this is something really, of course, we can't talk about Star Trek Picard, the show right now. But this is the info that Janeway is coming into the Borg situation with. And we have to remember, this is Janeway's first command. This is her ship. This is her first assignment. She hasn't dealt with the Borg before. She's only read stories. She was not at the Battle of Wolf 359. Rihanna, yeah, can you just explain that, what this battle is? Because they talk about it. Captain Asimov was there. A lot of them were there. I had to look on Memory Alpha because I'm like, they talked about it a lot in Unimatrix Zero. And essentially, that was the occurrence of the best of both worlds, the episode in The Next Generation we discussed in our villains episode, that when Locutus was a part of the Borg, an entire fleet of Starfleet ships was assimilated. And I think this is something we forget because we're so obsessed with Locutus of Borg and with Picard's role in this battle. But 
like a civilian transport craft was caught in the battle. So many starships were destroyed or assimilated. And so this was the huge first contact with the Borg that really shaped the way that Starfleet was trying to arm themselves against the Borg for future encounters. And oof, it's just, it's horrible what happened at Wolf 359. And so Janeway's getting a lot of reports about that. This is what she's hearing all across the board is that the Borg are evil, they're without redemption and without reason. Yeah, and I also love that she's doing all this research because it reminds me of me and you, Rihanna. Yeah. <laughs> Janeway's going back. She's watching all those episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, she's taking notes. And <laughs> going on yeah. memory alpha. <laughs> so I love that she is arming herself with all of this information, and then the fact that she chooses to take a Borg drone on several at first in the episode Scorpion that we just discussed, mm-hmm. and then eventually Seven of Nine and her goal is to help her become an individual and to completely separate her from the collective. It's really wild. I mean, and Janeway, I'm sure, you know, it's of course an idealism, like let's give this person her humanity back, but also it's extremely helpful to have a drone on board because she knows everything about the Borg and still has an amazing memory, remembers every specific detail about cubes and spheres and the Borg queen. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a tactical advantage as well. And that is a huge reason why they're able to survive through the Borg's nests over and over again. Absolutely. And they become very hardened to this. Janeway is easily the only captain who has defeated the Borg in multiple occursions. I mean, yeah. captains and Starfleet are lucky to get out of one Borg battle intact, and Janeway is constantly fighting them back and keeping them at arm's length. But we see that this taxes the Borg Queen. She taxes me and I must have her. Is <laughs> <laughs> what the Borg Queen is literally thinking every yeah, time. She, she saw Wrath of Khan. Yeah, and she's like, I agree with that guy. Oh god, you think she assimilated Khan? <laughs> oh no, she might have. Ashlyn, I wondered if you remembered this or thought about it in this way because it was the first time that I really was trying to think deeply about the Borg and how they work and how their assimilation benefits them. I don't know who it is. It's someone who tells them that the Borg only know the knowledge that they've assimilated. So in some ways, the Borg can be very naive. If they don't know much about Starfleet technology, they don't know how to modulate their shields for Starfleet weapons. Sadly, (laughs) because the Borg have such a high reach and because of Wolf 359, They have assimilated a lot of Starfleet officers. They do know a lot about Starfleet vessels and what certain phase modifications they need to penetrate their shields or what have you. But I think I forget this about the Borg because they are such an all-encompassing, such a frightening species that they do have these gaps in knowledge that can be very detrimental, particularly to the Queen. And one of their gaps in knowledge is Janeway (laughs) in general. I think that she is enough of an element that is unknown and enough of a what in the world is Janeway going to do next that she's hard to predict and she's not following Starfleet protocol. She doesn't follow the order that the Borg thrive on. 
I think that when the Borg Queen assimilates Anorax later, she's really going to agree with him, you oh know? God. And he's going to be like, that's all that Janeway's fault. <laughs> <laughs> they just like have tea and rant about Janeway together. Like mentally. Yeah. I also just want to note that if we zoom out a little bit and look at the whole Star Trek franchise, this is taking place in the year 1995, season five is, mm-hmm. which was my birthday. Ooh. And the movie movie first contact came out in 1996 so if you are a avid star trek fan in the 90s i envy you because you were watching voyager and then you went to the silver screen and saw the borg queen there too so well it's two different actors for the borg queen i never knew that i feel like yes i can't believe i didn't know that yeah. Well, I mean, it's very similar makeup. I mean, you make like a bald chick white and it could be Ilea <laughs> under there, you know? Oh my God, you're right. So it's Alice Krieg in First Contact and then Susanna Thompson in the Voyager episodes that we're about to talk about. Okay, that makes more sense because I'm like, how did they get this big screen movie actor to play in these random Voyager episodes? But different. they did not. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you for putting context to that, Ashlyn. Yes. Just that it's pretty smart of the writers to introduce someone as evil as the Borg Queen and then bring her on as a villain in a movie. Mm. Mwah. Very smart. Yeah. So we really get to see a lot of her in the episode Dark Frontier. And this is kind of a famous episode and a central viewing if you're ever going to watch Star Trek Picard. I won't say why. (laughs) (laughs) But but you should. We see the queen is really angry at Janeway and Voyager and she says that it was her plan all along to allow Seven to be assimilated into the Voyager crew and then she was going to come back at some point and retake her and kind of make her a double agent. Use the knowledge that Seven learned about Voyager to then destroy Voyager. But this is harder than she realizes because during this episode, Seven, at the advice of Janeway, I believe, mm-hmm. tells her to go back and look at the logs because Janeway has a plan and she wants to steal a transwarp coil from a Borg ship. And this is going to shave 20 years off their time getting home. So this is a huge mission with huge stakes. Yeah. And Annika, I should say Seven, is going back into her personal logs that belong to her parents. And it's very hard for her because it's triggering memories of before she was assimilated as a little girl and how much she loved her parents, but then also how dangerous their work was. And they did learn a lot about the Borg. They were very not afraid of anything because they were just beaming onto Borg ships and doing observations all day long. I think they were probably some of the first people to see the humanity of the Borg. I think that we got very lucky that the Hansons kept such detailed journals. We're lucky that they're Starfleet members because Starfleet is very good at keeping detailed records. What? And I think that it's partially because of the Hansons that the Voyager crew was not assimilated. They learned how to have the neural suppressants or whatever they are that they put on the back of their necks so that the board can't see them or notice their presence when they're beamed aboard. So this is what I'm saying, that the Borg technology, of course, is so advanced, but they do have these gaps in knowledge. Yep. Although I do wonder, they must have assimilated the Hansons when they weren't wearing their suppressants because they probably would have then assimilated the knowledge and been able to 
stop them or maybe voyager made like a modulating one that they could still avoid i mean i'm sure they had maybe they used a similar type of technology but it is a good gap in their knowledge that like oh if you just modify the technology and make it a little different then the borg don't know how to adapt to it right away yeah and i also think the borg don't take a shuttle that's just full of three people very seriously mm-hmm. as opposed to enemies that has like 5,000 people on their ship or Absolutely. a whole planet full of millions of people. And so I think, yeah, even though they would gain the knowledge of that into their collective, I don't think someone's like going through their memories, and which is good because <laughs> it really helps Voyager <laughs> later on. Yeah, exactly. We see the Borg Queen in this episode really manipulate Seven of Nine she says that if she doesn't come with her that she will assimilate all of voyager and seven is finally coming to a place in her life where she says voyager is her collective voyager is her family and so she's very protective of them but also luckily janeway is very protective of seven and will come after her to save her regardless of if she thinks seven made this decision on her own she knows that seven has been acting odd and has been really going through it having to read her parents journals and the most horrible thing is that her parents or at least her dad is there in the room with her as an assimilated drone and that's another way that the queen is able to manipulate her is by familial ties and saying if you rejoin the collective you'll be with your father again yeah the theme i really got throughout this episode was that annika slash seven in her mind she's really thinking of herself as a child again Mm. because she's being thrown back into these memories where she has so much PTSD that she's still working through. And she's a child in the face of the Borg Queen because it's like her mom. I mean, the Borg Mm -hmm. was her family at one point that she's now estranged from. And so Seven is surrounded by parental figures throughout this episode and her role unfortunately is to choose the one that's best for her and i was thinking that maybe the borg queen sent out a request from the alpha quadrant borg that were like hey can you mail me seven's dad i have to like use him for bait later Uh, (laughs) like can you just send like a solo shuttle out to this sphere and i'll meet you in like a couple days that's hilarious because they're pretty far away so she must have had this plan going for a while where she's like okay where's her data actually yeah i think Um, you're right because she is always thinking five steps ahead yeah but i also love in this episode that every time seven is being extra manipulated by the queen janeway pops up either in her earpiece and says don't worry seven we're coming to get you or she literally pops up when she shows up on the sphere and she's like, we're going to save you, Seven. <laughs> she says, look who your real mom is. It's me. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I just love, once again, Janeway doesn't give an F about exposing her crew to crazy risks to save a crewmate. I think this introduction to the Borg Queen is really good and she's very threatening and scary. And I love, because this is the first time that audiences have seen where her head descends into the boobs and then the rest of her body like walks there (laughs) yeah and her spine is like wiggling it's so creepy oh yeah it's so so well and like even without the movie budget of animation it still is creepy it looks great it looks great it looks so good 
so the queens is something that doesn't make any sense to me and i wondered if we could either unpack this or just write it off as writer error yeah. <laughs> um, she says that seven is quote the only borg who has ever returned to a state of individuality okay i'm so glad you brought this up because i was like what about hugh or <laughs> oh <laughs> literally two <laughs> borg I mean, and so my only explanation is that the queen, maybe she was taking a nap when she <laughs> lost Locutus. Technically, we talked about this in our Next Generation episode when we discussed Best of Both Worlds, that Picard still maintained the first person pronoun. So maybe that explains away Locutus and Picard, but that does not explain away Hugh at all. But my other option is that maybe they thought he was dead because he was severed from the collective before they even realized he gained individuality. So maybe they just didn't know. Okay, I like your explanation. I'd forgotten about that with Hugh, that maybe they just didn't realize he was severed. Mm -hmm. But also, I would not put it above her to just be manipulating Seven again, Uh, where she's like, you're so special. mm -hmm. You're the only one who's ever escaped. Because I'm thinking now more, if two people that we know of escape the Borg, (laughs) there's probably more. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, come on. Oh, I just want to point out, too, a couple of the shots in this episode were so good because they have, I think they use literal spotlights in the studio when they had green spotlights on Seven and the Queen, you know? They're like these two sort of dueling spotlights, like, casting on the both of them. And just the way that they do the Borg scenery in general, I just love that it maintains the integrity of the next generation without it feeling like we're just watching next gen. It still feels like we're in the Delta Quadrant. It feels like the ship's a little bit different design, you know, because the cubes are very similar, but then you've got spheres and you've got the the actual main hub where the queen is. And so... The transwarp conduit. Yeah, like you've got so much going on. And I'm just really glad that the whoever created those sets and everything were so thoughtful about how it's going to look and how the green lighting is so evil. Just like, ooh, it's just so well done. I totally agree with you. It's very spooky. Every time the Borg are there, I'm always spooked. <laughs> yeah, sufficiently spooked. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I'm so excited to talk about Unimatrix Zero because there is some dissent starting to occur within the Borg, even if it's only in the subconscious. Yes. So these, in Seven's case, former Borgs, and in the case of everybody else, active Borgs, yeah. <laughs> active duty Borgs, are <laughs> asleep in their little pods and they're dreaming about this land that they're all their own species and they're not a part of the Borg and they're all interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so even if someone's in the beta quadrant and someone's in the alpha or the gamma or the delta, they could all hang out together in this one space while they're sleeping, which also I'm just saying the only flaw in this is like with different time zones, it's amazing. They all can interact. (laughs) Like every night they go to sleep, they're like, okay, so what time is it for you? Like it's noon. Okay. I'll go to sleep at noon your time, you know, like, (laughs) Well, I wonder this because I think probably the Borg have all the same sleeping cycles because they're all inner. Well, no, that's dumb. I take that all back. Then they would all be asleep at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) They'd all just like be cogged out for like every single Borg. He was an active thing. It's like, okay, it's nap time. Let's go. (laughs) Two box, like, and sleep time begins in one minute. Oh, that was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. See, Ashley, oh. when I think more about Unimatrix, now that I take that back, I think that it's more like whoever shows up, shows up. You know, like I think because yeah. we've heard that Seven as a Borg had once been awake for 80 plus hours. 
And we've heard that they can go days without regenerating and all of this. So I think that it's probably just like, oh, I wonder if Greg's going to be here today. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that Klingon's here. You know, then Seven's like, maybe I'll find Axum here. Like, who knows? And so, but I do love Unimatrix Zero because it's this form of defiance, you know, that we had never thought possible of the Borg. And it creates a whole nother layer to the Borg and a layer of empathy. I think that this is the most important part and it's planting the seeds for some other future shows <laughs> that mm-hmm. the Borg have multifaceted layers and that we have to remember that these are all people who have been assimilated against their will. And so the Borg as a species is terrifying, but the real villain here is the queen. And But we even learned that the queen was assimilated as a child. So who came before the queen and how does the queen get chosen? I mean, I want to know all of these like very specific details about the Borg to learn more about like how this began it's fascinating i know i would watch a borg show <laughs> like yeah i'd watch a movie like about the origin of borg. Uh, like like a borg documentary mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah please narrated decks. by patrick stewart <gasps> yeah he would, never, he would never narrate a borg documentary are you kidding me <laughs> Maybe just from Janeway's perspective, like old lady Janeway, where she's just like, and then on Star Date 45. <laughs> she was, I mean, she was going to do a Borg seminar class in the yeah. future timeline. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, these people, and the reason they can all communicate in Unimatrix Zero is because they all have a disease. Mm-hmm. And so that's like cool. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's cool for them because they get to have like their own lives outside of the Borg. And then when they wake up, they have no idea that they're even dreaming. Yeah. And you know, seven finds out she's been in this relationship with Axum for like seven years, a long time, but she doesn't even remember him now that she's severed from the collective. So they get to reunite their love. But the Borg queen is really angry about this. And she keeps bringing drones that she knows are infected, specifically this poor guy. She decapitates him and then she digs through his brain for answers about what the virus is. And essentially she can't find a way to get rid of it or to trace it. Yeah. And so you know what Janeway's solution to this is? Let's get assimilated. Let's go into Unimatrix and let's bring hell. <laughs> like this is this her is first thought. First thought. Crazy. Thought, I guess. C- crazy. Crazy. And Tuvok and Moana are going along with this. And I mean, understandably, there are some things that are higher than yourself. And I think this is something that the Voyager crew excels on. They understand that, yeah, we want to get home. But also if we can take out like half of the Borg in the process, cool. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and they do they they get assimilated <laughs> um what but they maintain their individuality only to the extent of the neurosuppressants they have or whatever concoction the doctor comes up with and sadly Tuvok I think because he's a telepathic species is assimilated a lot faster than Bolana or Janeway yeah but he's all right so don't worry (laughs) we see Janeway working so seamlessly with her crew to enact this crazy crazy plan where she says to Chakotay thinking that it's the last straw and they fail she says Unimatrix Zero can no longer exist and they know that they have to give it up in order for thousands of Borg to not be killed. It's interesting because the Borg Queen is literally self-destructing all of these cubes. She self-destructed like 11 of them before Janeway was finally like stop killing these people. 
And you know that is how desperate the Borg queen is to maintain control because that's the most important thing about being a Borg is that they are one mind. And so if they start going rogue, it's all gonna be messed up. And so she doesn't even care about sacrificing those cubes and she would have done more she would have done way more because she knows it's really easy to assimilate people the borg are self-sustaining and so even if she has to get rid of even a couple million of them it won't hurt her at all in the long run yeah even though she calls them her children like clearly not this is similar to how oh gold ducat you know when he says you are all my children bajorans and then continues to execute them and to enact violence upon them and i think this is very similar to the queen is that they're her children so far as is when she can control them but she will kill them at the blink of an eye yep Exactly. Ooh, and it just makes her so dangerous because whenever she feels like she's out of control, which is often when she's around Janeway, she loses her cool and makes these quick decisions. And I think that is one of her weaknesses and something that does bring her downfall is the fact that she underestimates anyone who isn't the Borg and that she makes these really quick decisions thinking I'm just gonna annihilate all these Borg and hopefully that'll be good so she thinks that because she's so powerful that one solution will fix all of her problems but again didn't factor in Janeway nope then that's everybody's mistake yeah literally Yeah, so they are able at the end of this episode to get everybody back. And Janeway jokes, if I ever said that you transitioning from being a Borg was easy, remind me of today. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a sweet moment. Mm-hmm. And this is the last time we see the Queen until Endgame, until the finale of Voyager. And I just want to restate again that I have no idea when the Borg decided to go back in time to First Contact. Not a clue. I mean, in like us, our years, <laughs> season seven is two years so this is like 97 1997 98 uh when the finale occurs so you know it's a couple years after first contact i have no idea if in this time between unimatrix zero and the finale that the borg have traveled to the past because i think the borg queen dies in first contact so whoops um (laughs) wait yeah but the thing is is just i'm trying to point out that like first contact can take place at any point in the timeline because they're coming from some point in the future that we have no idea what it is very good and also i'm pretty sure that they can just seamlessly replace borg queen you know and it's fine yeah i think if they have enough of her memories and her skeleton then it's easily (laughs) able and maybe that's why they had different actresses i mean obviously for casting reasons but i think maybe for plot reasons they're also like well This is just a different variation of the Borg Queen. And that would make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, because we're only for this finale, we're just going to talk about Borg Queen and Janeway's interaction. Janeway has made it home, but they are all old and she's (laughs) not content that it took her so long to get home. And so she's going to go back in time to get them home even faster. And what she does is she takes Harry Kim, of all people, up on his suggestion to try to get home via a transwarp conduit. And so there's like a Borg's nest, and old Janeway comes back and says, yep, you better turn around, kids, because we're going, we're going back in. And so they make a plan on how to infiltrate and sneak into this hub. This whole plan, of course, has old Janeway go face off one-on-one with the Borg Queen one final time. Yeah, and like I was talking about earlier, 
how the queen just jumps into whatever situation. I think honestly her motto is assimilate first, ask questions later. <laughs> and she thinks that this is the solution to everything. It's just assimilate it and then we'll be good to go. Well, it's worked her whole life, so yeah. why wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's worked besides species 8472, but she does not realize that Janeway has been making plans with younger Janeway. And if one Janeway is hard to predict, imagine going off against two. No wonder when she sees Admiral Janeway and is like, whoa, you're old, I need to destroy you. That means there's another one of you trying to get through my hub. You know, all of this stuff. She makes all of these threats saying, you come into my nebula and I'll kill you. All this stuff, I'll assimilate all of you in an instant. But Voyager has this cool new armor plate, armor tech. It's got stuff from the future that the Borg Queen can't even conceptualize. Then, of course, Janeway also has a neuropathic virus that she inoculated herself with so that the Borg Queen would assimilate her and get the virus herself. Again, genius. Exactly what Picard wanted to do to Hugh, (laughs) which I think we discussed in our family series. But, um, or love and affection, whatever. But I was like, fam. I was like, wait. Oh my god, my favorite line from this episode is when, you know, the Boar Queen assimilates Janeway and she like falls to the ground and then the Boar Queen starts like twitching and getting all like, oh, like what's going wrong with me? And Janeway goes, it must have been something you assimilated. Yes! (laughs) So good! Epic! I just love that and her confidence at the end of this because she knows, oh, I'm succeeding. I will no longer exist anyway because I'm sending my future self back to Earth early and land a crippling blow to the Borg and knock out their transwarp hub that goes to the Alpha Quadrant. So that's really good. That really staves off a lot of the Borg attacks that could have been happening in the Alpha Quadrant during that time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, oh, she's just amazing. Janeway's so cool. Like, this is so heroic. So heroic. And the fact that she faces every Borg encounter with the confidence and nonchalance of just her captain self is so impressive. I just can't even tell you how many times she's fought off the Borg and succeeded. And to take down someone like the Borg Queen is just really unheard of. I mean, it happened in First Contact, but, like, that's movie proportions, you know? And so... It's cool to see sort of these movie stakes turn out well at the end of the series. That's what you got to do. That's how you got to send everybody home, literally. Yeah. I just think that what has happened with every single protagonist that we've discussed, the villains that they encounter in their series make them stronger. Yeah. And Janeway is not the person she was when the caretaker first took her from the Badlands all those years ago, all those hours ago. (laughs) And she has come out stronger and more violent too. (laughs) A little dash of both. (laughs) Yeah. And I can't wait to see what kind of villains Janeway encounters in Prodigy. Prodigy, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm interested to see what the heck timeline that is. Like what's going on with that? We got Prodigy coming soon. Woo! (laughs) and you know what else we got coming soon what the enterprise villain episode whoa (laughs) omg we are done with our voyager villains thank you so much for tuning in to listen to all the best and worst and baddest of star trek (laughs) voyager and i cannot wait to talk about enterprise next week and just dive deep into the sulaban and shran and we get to talk about jeffrey combs again so really just there's all brightness ahead (laughs) yes absolutely rihanna thank you so much for joining me today 
And I just love talking about the most villainous people with you. Yeah, you know, it's a real blast. (laughs) And I'll see you (laughs) next week. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the fifth episode of our villain series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the villainous characters in Enterprise. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. So far, we have covered these podcast series, pilot episodes, family, love and affection, and time travel. If you haven't heard a particular series, please go back and listen to any of these awesome episodes. Social media and marketing is done by me, Ashlyn Gelman, and Rihanna Hurd. Editing is done by Rihanna Hurd and Ashlyn Gelman. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Warp's Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. Journey 6.2.5.1 Mr. Spock has told me that he doesn't want to just eat meat, so I'm going to a new grocery store. Wish me left bones.